Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are kicking off a fun new mini-series that will be going for probably the next year or so called Batman on Film. Uh, there is a new Batman movie coming out, not for a while now, it's been delayed into 2022 uh-huh. because of COVID and everything, the, the Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson Batman, but you know, it was, it was going to come out in 2021, we had been talking about this for a while, I'd been wanting to do something like this for a while, possibly in writing, possibly on the podcast, decided to do it on the podcast where we are going to, probably around once a month, thereabouts, um, we are going to be talking about every Batman movie that has come out in theaters every theatrical release so that starts with today we will be going over the 1966 batman movie with adam west and burt ward based on the 1966 tv series um and then moving forward through the tim burton films and the joel schumacher films and the chris nolan films there's 10 overall um i've sort of identified that are going to be in this series and there's a couple of reasons for this one is just i think we are both big Batman fans and it's interesting to kind of look at all of this because it's a series with it's you know he's been adapted to film more than any other superhero by far mm-hmm. and it's a re- it's it is one of the more interesting histories of a superhero on film because it is so weird and diverse and like it, it swings so rapidly um but I will say for my part Sean one big reason I started thinking about this was during the protests over the summer um, after the death of George Floyd, and I think the call back to to thinking now, not that this was a new conversation, but it became more um, culturally centered about policing in America and the role of policing. And I think Batman is the fictional character in, in comics by far most tied into that. Maybe like the Punisher or something, but he is not as popular, obviously, as Batman. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, man, I would really like to try to think about this because I have always had mixed feelings about Batman and kind of the relationship to policing. But especially now, and and that, you know, this character isn't going away, but I do wonder about his relevance. And I think this series will be an opportunity to do that. Um, so that's kind of my opening pitch. Um, why are you interested in doing this, Sean? I mean, you know, as you said, Batman is... Um, he is arguably the most popular superhero in like the wider popular cultural context. There are a couple of like Spider-Man and Iron Man um, and Superman are up there. Um, but Batman seems to be a character that we cannot escape from. Uh, and I do like him a lot. And it is a thing where um, I think it's interesting how many times he's revisited over a very short period of time. Um, and there's not a lot of characters that have that. So when we look at like the list that you put together, Jonathan, of the 10 movies, the one outlier is the one we'll talk about today, Batman from 1966. The rest of them come out in a pretty short period of time. Like there's not a huge amount of gap, even between Batman Robin and Batman Begins is not a huge stretch of time. Um, And so it's interesting to me that this is a character that we have since like the mid to late 80s not really escaped from in a certain way. Like he's not dropped out of relevancy or popularity the way that most other um, big pop culture type characters generally do. And so I think that's one interesting thing to revisit. And another thing to revisit, and we'll get it'll be a while before we get to these, um, but the Nolan trilogy is also one that um, fits more broadly into what we've done over the past couple of years of revisiting movies from that kind of early 2000s-ish period. Obviously, those movies extend all the way to the early 2010s. 
but they fit in my mind in a similar place to the Star Wars prequels and Lord of the Rings and the Spider-Man trilogy in those kinds of movies, even if they go a little bit later than those. Um, it's a similar sort of movies of not necessarily our childhoods, but of our like young adolescence into adulthood and spanning that period. Um, and so those are ones that I'm in particular interested in revisiting. Yeah, the, the one movie on this list we will actually, it'll be full circle is The Dark Knight Rises because that was one yep. of our very first podcasts um, in this version of the podcast. And, um, you know, I, I will just say I have extremely different thoughts on that movie now than I did then. Um, I've, so. This will be the second time I watch it once we get to that one. Yeah. Uh, most of these movies I've seen at least twice. That is the only one I've only seen the one time in the movie theater. Yeah, so let me let me tell the people which ten we're going to be doing uh, in case you would like to compile these movies for yourself and watch along. And I say compile because inexplicably, even though Warner Brothers has its own streaming service now, HBO Max, most of these are not on there. They are not. Some of them are on Netflix. Some of them are on Showtime or whatever. I, they're, they're just they're scattered to the winds. They're easy to find, but they're not all in one place, which is baffling. You know. But whatever. This is the streaming future we've all embraced. This is yes. what we get. Yeah. Um, all right. But let me tell you what the 10 are going to be. We're going to start with today, Batman from 1966, directed by Leslie Martinson, starring Adam West. Then we're going to be doing Batman from 1989 and Batman Returns from 1992, both of uh, directed by Tim Burton, starring Michael Keaton. We will then do a little detour to the world of animation with Batman Mask of the Phantasm from 1993, the Bruce Timm movie starring Kevin Conroy, which was a theatrical release, so it qualifies for this series. I should say we are not doing any of the other like DC Animated Universe movies, um, because like some stuff like The Killing Joke got like a one-night theatrical run, but that doesn't count. We're talking about like actual movies that were printed on film and put in theaters, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, so, so Mask of the Phantasm counts. Also, it's really good. So it's just we've we've and talked it rounds us. It, yeah, puts us up to a ten. Also, so it's another reason yes. to get it in there. Just to get that nice rounded number. Yep. Uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin from '95 and '97, both of the Joel Schumacher movies, starring Val Kilmer and George Clooney. Uh, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises. We all know these. They're the Christopher Nolan movies starring Christian Bale. And finally, I had forgotten about this, Sean, until I was compiling this last night. But I think you've never seen it, and it is really nope. good. And that's the Lego Batman movie from 2017 starring Chris McKay, or directed by Chris McKay and starring Will Arnett as Batman. It's the spinoff of the Lego movie. Um, and I thought that would be a fun up note to end on. Yes, and I've never seen that one. So that will be... We'll, we'll come full circle with a like the second comic Batman movie, um, or co comedic Batman movie, I suppose I should say, when we're talking about Batman. Yes. More specific when you use the word comic. Um, but yeah, that'll be fun to, to watch that movie for the first time. Yeah, and, and I think, like I said, and I like what you, you pointed out about it, it'll be kind of full circle with the movie we're talking about today, because they are comedic in similar ways. Um, uh, we are not going to be doing new episodes on Batman v Superman or Justice League, because Those we already... Those are Batman movies. Sorry, what? Those are not Batman movies. So we're not going to do them for a number of reasons, but one of them is those aren't Batman movies. That's a team-up movie and Justice League. Yes. So they're not Batman movies. They don't count. Um, what I might do, Sean, is the episodes we've already done on those, I might edit down the topics and re-air them in this series, just as, like, for completionist's sake. But we will not... 
One, they're, as you say, they're not strictly Batman movies. And two, they're terrible and we don't want to watch them again. And we've done episodes on them recently enough. Those are not outdated. I don't think our opinions have changed on them. No, yeah. I've been, uh, there's no way in hell I'm watching Batman v Superman again. It's not even really a Batman movie. It's not, it's not a Batman movie, both in the sense that it's a Batman-Superman movie and in the sense that the character in it doesn't feel particularly like Batman to me in a way that I want to talk about. Because so. he brands criminals and then they get murdered in prison? Yep. <laughs> All right. Yep. That does not happen in the Adam West movie. I am happy to report Adam West never brands a criminal with a hot iron so that they are later murdered brutally in prison. Um, that, is, that is not something that happens in the Adam West movie, and it's a reason I love this movie, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. It does not have that. Well, anyway, that will be our topic later today. Let's do a couple other pieces of stuff first, Sean. Uh, my first big piece of stuff is please, for the love of God, if you are listening to this podcast and live in the United States and are of voting age, go vote. For fuck's sake, do it. Go vote. It's, it's easy. It'll make you feel proud. It's your civic duty. Uh, it is also possibly the last chance you will ever have to do it if this goes south. So, you know, go vote. Um, I've already voted. Um, turned my ballot in the other day. Sean, you live in Colorado. Mail votes. You've probably got your ballot already. Yep, I already voted. Yep. Okay, so we have both already voted. You, if we can do it, so can you. Go vote. Um, it's important. And, and that's my PSA for today. Also, don't vote for Trump. That's the second part. That's like the implied <laughs> part um, is don't vote for Trump. Vote, but not for him, please. If you are still listening to this podcast... But are a like active Trump voter, I I mean I, I guess thank you for being here, but I no don't do that. Vote for Biden. Trump is bad. Yeah, I just feel like because I feel like sometimes the messaging around like just go vote, and I'm like normally I'm totally for that, but we should have that very clearly said. But don't vote for that one. Go vote. For Biden, go vote for all the people on, like, uh, for your state. Um, go vote on all, like, the propositions and stuff for your state. But do not, for the love of God, circle in uh, Donald Trump, because fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. definitely fuck that guy. He's bad. Uh, all right. Uh, let's go ahead and move on. Um, what kind of stuff do you have, Sean? I've just been playing a lot of Genshin Impact. Well, I've been doing that, and I've been watching Gundam Seed. So for people, you know... People, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, they're doing this Batman thing, that means they're not going to do Gundam anymore. We're still doing Gundam. We're, we're still we're doing still, Gundam. We're keeping up with that. I've, I watched like five episodes of Gundam Seed last night because I like it. Um, yeah, I, um, I'm, I, I've been a little slow on Gundam Seed so far because I've had a lot going on this last week, but I'm seven episodes in and it's quite interesting. Um, I will say one ob- observation about Gundam Seed, Sean, mm-hmm. is in the seventh episode is when you learn about what the... Uh, Bloody Valentine was, because that's part of that series mythology, is that there was this incident that started the current war in that show, and it was this incident where a bunch of people were killed. And at one point, one of the characters says, you know, oh man, 247,000 people were killed, and, and it sparked this whole war. And I paused it and put my head in my hands, and I thought, well, we're at 220,000 people dead in the U.S. from COVID. By the time you and I finish and talk about Gundam Seed, more people will have died... <laughs> Of this virus in the United States than in the fictional thing that sparked this war in this stupid anime we're watching. My God, what the fuck? The world is terrible, Sean. Vote for Biden. <laughs> yes. Anyway, Gundam so, Seed is interesting. The the theme songs fucking slap. That's my that's my yeah. biggest reaction so far. 
Yeah. So we we are we'll do that Gundam stuff when we get to the end of Gundam Seed. Um, so I've been doing that, and then I've been playing a lot of Genshin Impact, which continues to be very very good. Um, I finished what is I guess they call it the prologue, but it's like it really is just like Act One, um, which is they sort of have the story structured relative to the sort of region you're in. So right now in the game there are two regions: um, Mondstadt, which is where you start, which is sort of like fake medieval france fantasy france kind of area um and that's where the whole first part of the story takes place uh and i've finished that and now i'm in the second region called leeway which is sort of fake uh fantasy china uh i will say that i think the story stuff in genshin impact gets quite good um once you get into that second half of the first act uh when you meet a character named venti and sort of start learning about who he is and what his story is about and how that connects into the mythology of the world uh, I think I kind of was giving short thrift um, to the story because I think it, early on it just feels fairly generic modern anime fantasy stuff and it still has that like it still definitely feels like it fits into the milieu of a Sword Art Online-esque modern anime fantasy thing um, the kind of the world building but it goes into way more detail when you get to the end of Act 1 and it kind of lays out to you some of the mythology of the world um, the politics of what's going on um, it's very Avatar The Last Airbender in this each of the nations in the world ha is sort of ruled by a god that is revolved around one of the elements. Um, there are seven elements, so that means implies there's going to be seven regions ultimately. Mondstadt is the wind region, then Leeway, the next area, is the earth region. Um, and so that whole section is really fascinating and really quite good. It also highlights, I think, what is a minor problem with the, lo the English language localization of the game. Where um, I it has the very like modern anime esque um, English localization thing like Dragon Quest had a similar thing to it where they just kind of get a little bit too cutesy with it um, and the terminology I think is a little bit too much of everything has to have a special weird name to it and it can't just be wind magic it has to be anemo magic and it's pyro magic and cryo and geo instead of it being earth magic um, and you end up you collect like geoculus things which are like the geoculus which is a little like sphere orb which is a collectible rather than what i imagine is probably just called equivalent in um japanese is probably like earth sphere and a wind sphere and a fire sphere it's like way easier to remember that terminology um and then you get to a point where one of the characters is explaining the kind of big picture mythology of the world and they're starting they just throw all this crazy weird terminology at you that is impossible to remember um, and then they start explaining that all the people who have these elemental powers in the game, which are the, you know, the characters you can collect, all of them have an elemental power. Um, and those people are sort of granted this elemental power by the gods. Um, and then they become effectively a candidate to themselves become a god if they become powerful enough and sort of take the place of the next god of that element, which is a cool concept. Uh, and I don't even remember what the word they use. It's some weird like fake Latin word they made up. Um, to refer to that concept of you are someone who is going to become a god, but I'm playing it with the Japanese language option, and they have some weird fake Latin word, but I'm listening to what the character is saying in Japanese, and he just uses the word Genshin, and I realize, oh, that's where the name of the fucking game comes from, because Genshin, with the kanji they use, basically means origin of a god, um, because it's Gen for origin, Shin for god, and I was like, well, that's the name of the game. The name, which they didn't change the name of the game in English. It's still called Genshin Impact. It's called just Genshin in Japan. I assume it's the same in China um, because it's the same kanji they use. And it's just like, 
I feel like you've run into a weird problem there with your localization methodology if the reason why the game is called what it is called is a word that because of the way you've chosen to localize it, you can't actually use that word in the game. That feels like a misstep to me, personally. It's very weird. Yeah, that does. The, the Dragon Quest comparison sounds spot on in terms of maybe being too cute by half for, for some of the localization. Yeah, so that stuff's a little bit weird. It's obviously not a big deal. Um, but for people who are playing that game in, with English and stuff and don't understand that, like, if you want to know why the game is called Genshin Impact, well, that's why it's called Genshin Impact, because it's about the people who are Genshin who are the people who can become gods. Um, and so I finished that area, got that good story stuff, um, and then moved on to Liwei, which is the fake sort of China area. I'm probably in, like finished the first third or so of the story quest of that area and explored around a bunch. Um, and the second region, Liwei, is really cool. Um, I think it's it's where the game's sort of aesthetic identity really comes into its own, and it starts feeling a lot less like sort of a Breath of the Wild thing and more of its own thing. Both in terms of the music, completely changes. So when you move to Liwei, um, all the music changes into this sort of like um, Chinese-inspired uh, musical style. So it has a lot of traditional Chinese instrumentation. The music just fucking rules. It's really kick-ass. Um, the combat music in particular is very good in that second region. And then the, the geography is very different because it becomes much more, um, again, it's sort of China-inspired. So it reminds me personally of like that first volume of original Dragon Ball. Um, where like Goku lives and it's like those big kind of mountains and like the peaks and valleys. Um, it's just like these huge like rock pillars that sort of jut up from the ground. It's a similar sort of aesthetic, which fits a lot with it being the earth region. So you, it's just like there's a real focus on these kind of like very tall dramatic rock formations all over the place combined with like the, the beauty of nature uh, and moving into that area and just seeing that pretty dramatic aesthetic shift in every aspect of the game's aesthetic presentation. It's very cool. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very satisfied so far. Uh, and I'm excited to get to the end of this region, figure out what's going on with the story, because they introduced a whole, like each region's story feels so far fairly self-contained. Um, I'm really excited to kind of get to the bottom of, there's kind of a mystery that I'm unraveling as I go through the story in this area that feels very different tonally to the kind of story the first area was. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really kick-ass. I'm very excited to see how they're going to update the game, what they're going to put into it. Um, but it's it continues to be very, very good. Are the two areas what's in the game right now? Is there anything beyond that yet? Um, like there's a bunch of sort of repeatable mission stuff. There's like dungeons and things like that um, that I haven't really dipped my toes into yet because I'm more focused on the story. But I don't think there's no other like sort of areas to explore. There's just okay. more like combat challenges and sort of like what it like broadly would be like the equivalent of the strikes in a destiny or something like that. Right. It just sounds like that's a cool thing they could do in the future is is maybe, you know, if your if your comparison was like Avatar, it would be cool to get like a third and fourth world eventually. Um I mean that's definitely that, where they're going. I think they've yeah. said that they're gonna add the third area in December, which is not okay. that far off. So Wow, yeah, no, I gotta get on this game. And the reason I have not gotten on this game is because I cannot stop playing Hades. I cannot tear myself away from it. I am chemically addicted. It is dangerous, but I do really want to play Genshin Impact. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it before I talk about Hades for a second? Um, I do want to touch on some of the combat stuff because I have changed my party uh, setup quite a bit from the last time I talked, where I unlocked a character called Beidou, um, or Hokuto in, in Japanese, uh, which means North Star, because they just use the same kanji, and I just find that kind of cool. 
Um, but she's a dope uh, pirate queen kind of lady um, who uses a big-ass sword. Um, she's voiced by the woman who voices Ryuko, the main character from Kill a Kill, uh, which is also a cool detail if you like to kill a kill. Um, but she's like uses lightning powers, and she's really cool because her abilities are pretty unique. She's kind of a counter-based character. So most, you know, you, you have two abilities unique to characters. You have your R2 attack, and then you have your ultimate, which is on triangle. Um, and her R2 attack is if you hold it down, she kind of uses her claymore as a shield. Um, and any damage you take while you're holding it down, then um, she kind of enters a counter thing where she then, if you, she's taking a bunch of damage, she will do more damage with the resulting kind of like lightning slash she does. Uh, but when you level her up and you kind of rank her up to this, what they call ascension, and you send her character for the first time, she unlocks an enhancement to that ability where it's kind of a perfect counter. Or if you press R2 right when you take damage, she just immediately does the most powerful version of that move rather than having to sort of sit there and build up damage. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I was playing around with her a little bit, and she was kind of hard to use until I, it kind of clicked for me how I could use that character. Where I have another character, Shanling, um, who is kind of my main damage dealer. And she has an ability where she summons a little bear thing that spews fire in front of it for like five seconds. Um, and then will set stuff on fire. And if something is set on fire, it just is continuously taking a small amount of damage, even if it's one of your own characters. Meaning that if I switch to Shanling, use her R2 ability, summon her little like bear thingy that spews the fire, and then immediately switch back to Beidou, step forward a little bit, stand in the fire, and just hit R2, because she's continuously taking damage by standing in the fire I created, she immediately uses the most powerful version of the counter, regardless of whether or not the enemy's even attacking me. And once I realized that, it's like, oh shit. That is some dope fucking like crazy weird ass synergy. This is some like Final Fantasy 2 bullshit where you're like hurting your own character to make your character do more damage. Uh, it was very satisfying and I feel like it kind of helped me recontextualize how I'm thinking about my whole uh, party setup. That's a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, that's like another part of the game that continues to be very enjoyable. And it does feel like there's quite a bit of depth there with how you set up your party and how their abilities can chain off of each other in ways that I think are pretty surprising and unpredictable. Um, and that's very fun as well. Awesome. That sounds really cool. I, I, every time you talk about this, I want to play it more. So it's, it's here. It's sitting on my computer. I've got it. I just need to pull myself away from Hades. So, so how, how, how far are you in Hades? How, are, how is that going for you at this point? I took notes. Uh, all right. I have played 55 hours of Hades. I have done 79 runs in Hades, and I have cleared the game 17 times as of this morning. I did another clear today with the Shield of Aegis with its aspect of Beowulf, because there is a cool thing where... No, 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 I see you raising your eyebrow. Let me tell you about this. Okay. In the, in the end game, so, all, so you have six weapons in Hades, and all of them have different aspects that you can unlock with one of the like currencies you get while grinding through the dungeons and stuff. And um, the aspects actually change it pretty heavily. Like like your shield, you can have one where you, your your main move with the shield is like you can do your Captain America shield throw and then do a dodge that can or like a block that can turn into an attack. You can also change that up where when you block, then you can throw multiple shields. There's another aspect where the shield it doesn't do a Captain America throw. It does this like it becomes this big like spinning spike disc that kind of goes out and does its own thing while you fight. Um, but the fourth aspect of every weapon is a hidden aspect that you only unlock after playing a shit ton of the game and people will finally start talking to you about it. And it is basically like these 
resonances that come through from time and it's basically like um some of them are like so so like you have the aspect of beowulf for the shield for the sword you have the aspect of excalibur um and it's it's basically you're hearing about like one day there will be a legendary warrior named king arthur and he will use this and like the the characters will be like man that's going to be interesting and and then hades will be like he'll be here eventually i'll meet him and and so you get to use these there's the aspect of gilgamesh so um there's the aspect of guan yu for the spear um and they're they're sort of very powerful in some cases like i think the aspect of excalibur makes the sword much easier for me because it creates this like big one it gives you extra health and then it creates this big field where like you take less damage when you're inside of it um, so I like that one, but some of them are really challenging. Like the aspect of Guan Yu gives you a very powerful spear, but it gives you like a quarter health and healing. So you have to be like really careful with it. I have not cleared the game with that one. I've cleared it with the other aspects I have. Um, so anyway, that's, that's why that happens, Sean. And it is fun to be like, like, I think you get the aspect of Beowulf from, um, Asterius the Bull. And, like, mm-hmm. you meet him, or the Minotaur, the Minotaur. Yeah. And so you have this whole thing, like, the bosses of the third region of Hades are the Minotaur, Asterius, and then uh, Theseus, the legendary hero. And you'll be talking to Asterius, and he'll be like, I've heard about this 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 resonance of this man that will one day fight a dragon named Beowulf, and blah, blah, blah. And then you get it, and he's like, and then you're fighting, like, I, I look forward to one day meeting this foe. And so it's kind of a fun, like, connection to other mythologies, which I think is cool. That is very cool. Yeah. For, at first, when you said that, I was like, did they just not realize that they forget? Did they just like <laughs> run out of Greek stuff? And they're like, ah, fuck it. Most people aren't even going to know. Yeah. But no, I have played a lot of Hades. I have rolled credits on Hades. I would say there's kind of like three phases to the game. There is the initial phase where you are trying to clear the game for the first time. And once you do that, the game is very much not over because then the story really kicks into a higher gear and you have to clear it over and over again at that point. I think you have to clear it 10 times total to get to the point where the credits roll and you kind of resolve the the basic story of the game. But the story and the world keeps going after that and there is continued justification for why Zagreus, the main character, is going through the dungeon again and again and again. And my understanding is, if I play it enough, there is a like final, true ending cutscene that will play eventually. I don't think the community has figured out exactly what conditions unlock it, but um, if you just play enough, it'll happen. So I'm kind of still playing through that, and also I just don't want to stop playing, because it is so much fun, it is so good, uh, it is so ludicrously addictive. And also, Sean, this game has a ludicrous amount of writing in it. I am 55 hours into this thing, and I have not seen repeated dialogue yet. Like, it is... Wow. And, and, and I mean, there are characters where, okay, if I've done 79 runs, that means I have talked to most of these characters 79 times, or more. And, and they all have new things to say every time. And, like, the things... And, like, there are relationships I'm still unfolding, because I've gotten... So, one of the things you can do when you're kind of maxing up your relationships with characters, almost like Persona style is you eventually get from six of the characters a companion totem that you can use in the dungeons, and then they will come in and do a special attack. And I've gotten four of the six, and I'm working on the last two. Um, but, like, yeah, so that's all cool stuff that I'm still doing. I'm kind of building out my my whole base in the House of Hades. Uh, it's just an amazing game. I don't have a ton more to say without spoiling it, and I don't want to spoil it for you or for anyone else listening, because I really think you should discover it for yourself. I will just say that, you know, the game, if anything, just gets richer the more and more and more you play. Uh, it is ludicrous. I, I have played this one 
basic dungeon with four areas 79 times now and i am not tired of it good god it's it's crazy it's a it's a great podcast game at this point for when i'm running through the dungeons i will say because you can turn on something and just kind of zone out and, and play it although it it it's hard you have to you have to wake back up sometimes because it's mm-hmm. very involved in the boss fights um but I'm loving this game. Um, it is so good. This game is only, I think, $25 when it's not on sale. That is ludicrous. I, I, At this point, I might have played it more than any other game this year. I'd have to like check my list. I think the only one that would have been that in this length range would be Ghost of Tsushima, but I don't think that took me 60 hours. So No, that uh, game's not that long. No. So, yeah. Uh, Hades, you're a great game. I love you. I, I will probably talk more about you at, at year's end and maybe delve into some spoilers then but but i will try not to before then sounds rad yeah i also wanted to mention we got the minecraft uh dlc for smash bros this week where steve from minecraft along with alex zombie and enderman all came to super smash brothers and for all you people bitching about you don't want minecraft in your smash this is one of the best characters they've ever done it's so cool it is such a very cool piece cool. of DLC. Yeah, what were you gonna say? Yeah, I watched. I, yeah, I watched a video of it, and it was just like, man, it looks like they put every fucking mechanic you could possibly think of into this one dude. Um, it's it ridiculous. Seems fucking nuts. Yeah, yeah. Because so, so just to describe it for people, Steve is a really interesting character because he is extremely powerful, but he has limitations based on Minecraft mechanics. So, like for a lot of your moves, you have to like build up your crafting meter at the bottom by you like take your pickaxe out and you mine into the ground, and you have to like find moments in the fight where like your opponent is distracted, and you can kind of pick away and get some stuff out. Your weapons will break, so you can upgrade your weapons. If you mine enough, you get a piece of diamond, and then you go to your crafting table and you make like a diamond sword, and then that's more powerful and also has more durability you have this like mine card attack that you can do you can drop tnt you can make these like magma rocks but all of that takes some of your crafting meter um and so it's a fun like risk reward character and it's just yeah if you like minecraft at all just every single thing about him is this cool easter egg from minecraft and it is like so accurate to the game like how he moves how he looks the minecraft map in smash bros now is super awesome um it's just like it's so cool. It's it's so clearly like this is a character that is so different for Smash Brothers that Sakurai and company had to put even more work than usual into it, I think, and it really paid off. It's it's an awesome, awesome character. And the when my brother and I were playing as him, one of the first things we did is we put Kirby in a match and saw, okay, what happens when Kirby swallows the Minecraft guy and Kirby turns into a Minecraft blocky character? And that is one of the best little touches. So it's awesome. Yeah, it seems very, very cool. It's way more... It, it satisfies what I want from DLC characters for a video game I don't play, which is I want them to be cool enough that I want to watch a video about them, <laughs> which was like how it was with Terry Bogard, where I'd like watch a 30-minute video that was just like breaking down all the shit that he did and all the crazy Easter eggs in his stage and stuff. And I did something very similar with Minecraft Steve. And I did not do that with Fire Emblem Person and Person from ARMS because it was like, yeah, I'm sure those characters are fun to play, but they are not conceptually interesting. Right, and and I think I, I've liked all the DLC characters so far quite a bit. Even like Min Min from Arms, I know nothing about Arms, but it's a it's a cool character they did. But I think Minecraft Steve is is maybe the best of the ones they've done so far. I would say him, um, Joker is obviously really cool, uh, and Terry Bogard. And I love Hero from Dragon Quest for the Dragon Quest of it all. But I think Terry, Joker, and and Steve are the best ones from this this last year or two of DLC. Um, 
And, you know, those big swings are just really cool. And if you're a Smash Bros. fan and are not satisfied with the bizarre assortment of characters we've been getting these last two years, I don't know what you want. Because we've gone Joker, Hero, Banjo-Kazooie, <laughs> Terry fucking Bogard, you know, and now this. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's been a wild time. I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. curious what, because we've got four left in this DLC season. So I'm really curious what they do. Please put Goku in the game. Yeah, I was going to say, there's only one other character left that matters. Please put Goku in the game, you fuckers. Yes. Um, all right. So, you want to do a couple of quick pieces of news? Yeah, what's going on in the news, Jonathan? Well, this is... I don't usually share news on here about movies that are in development, like that are not in front of a camera, but this is too exciting not to share. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Miller, director of the Mad Max movies, including Mad Max Fury Road, a Weekly Stuff podcast favorite, also just a people who are alive favorite um yeah he has been wanting to make since fury road a sequel to that film really a prequel about um imperator furiosa and so it sounds like that is coming closer to fruition it has not technically been greenlit by warner brothers yet but he has cast anya taylor joy as a young furiosa uh, so this will be a prequel. Anya Taylor-Joy has been in a ton of stuff. She is one of the most talented actresses of her generation. Um, I would really recommend people see the Jane Austen movie Emma by Autumn DeWilde. She is, she's the best Emma ever. She's phenomenal in that. Um, she's also in, there's a movie called Thoroughbreds that you should see if you want to know what this, this woman is capable of because she is just a phenomenal actress. And she was also in The New Mutants. And I heard she was actually good in that despite the movie being terrible. So it doesn't surprise me. She's awesome. And they have also in, in Undisclosed Roles, we know Chris Hemsworth, Thor himself, will be in this. And Yaha Abdul-Mateen II, who um, I believe, wasn't he Dr. Manhattan in the HBO show? I think he was. He was um, Dr. Manhattan in the HBO uh, Watchmen, which is, I just gave a giant spoiler for HBO Watchmen if you haven't seen it yet, because you do not know he is that guy until the end. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, whatever. That show's been out for like a year. Yeah. Yeah, and I think he's on... Uh, Lovecraft Country now on on HBO. I should do my research on this and make sure I'm not mixing him up, but I think that's right. Uh, and he's a really cool actor. So yeah, it sounds like this is going. Yep, I'm correct about that. Um, anyway, so it sounds like this will actually be happening. Um, it would be very sad if it does not come to fruition yet. And I don't know what the possible downside for Warner Brothers would be in not getting this movie made, because at worst they make another half billion and they they get another couple of Oscars. So. Why the hell not? This sounds cool. Yeah, I just want George Miller to make another movie. You know, like yeah, yes, please. Yeah, Mad Max Fury Road. I don't know if people heard, but it's it was very good. That was a very good movie he made. Yeah, and I think the only risk is that that movie sets such a ridiculously high bar; it will be hard to top. Which is why I actually think it's good that they're going in like the prequel Young Furiosa direction because I think mm-hmm. that will help it be. I think if you did it with Charlize Theron again it would be much harder to overcome the Fury Road comparisons. I think letting it be its complete own thing is cool. And uh, I just like all of these actors, but also it it tickles me that we're going to get Chris Hemsworth in a Mad Max movie. Yeah, no, it sounds rad. I like Chris Hemsworth in everything I've seen him in, so. Also, George Miller is Australian. This will probably shoot in Australia. Does Chris Hemsworth finally get to be Australian in a movie? I hadn't even thought about it. Yes, I'm sure it does. Yeah. Yeah, this is good. Anyway, all right. Other piece of news this week is about games. We finally got a look at the PlayStation 5 UI, Sean. 
Yes, and they just in the you know way that console stuff just gets rolled out these days. It's just randomly here's a ten minute YouTube video just drops one day. It's very it, they these fuckers keep us on our toes. It's just like random. I just remember like waking up and scrolling through Twitter and being like, wait, what are these screenshots? Wait, they actually showed the PS5 UI. What? <laughs> I had yeah. to go find it on fucking YouTube. I mean, at this point, I was wondering if we were going to see it pre-launch because this is we're less than a month out from release, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they had not shown us anything. But they did a state of play video. It's about 12 minutes long. Pretty in-depth. Like, did not go into, like, settings and stuff. But, um, you know, the basic takeaways... I took some notes while I was watching the video, Sean. And you have um, an overlay akin to what PlayStation and Xbox do now, except now it's along the bottom when you hit the, the PlayStation button. Um, and there's a series of kind of overlay cards while you're in-game. Those cards can do a lot of different things. There's sort of party stuff. There's activities, which is this new um, thing for both trophy tracking, but also just in-game activity tracking. Um, it's very robust. It shows you, like, playtime estimates and details of, of all these different in-game activities. They were showing this off with the Sackboy game that's going to be a launch title. Um, there's a whole game help system if you are a PS Plus member that basically gives you, like, your hints and walkthroughs without having to go online and search a YouTube video or something. A lot of this is picture-in-picture. Um, there's screen sharing. You can even, like, watch someone else playing a game picture-in-picture while you are playing your game. Um... You can, they, they showed off the create button, pretty similar to what we have now, although I think with a much slicker menu. Um, the home menu, very similar to PS4 in its basic functionality, but it's been very redesigned. Smaller icons split between games and media. Um, you kind of scroll down to see options on each game. It's kind of similar to what Xbox does now when you go into some of that. Um, Settings and everything appear to be in the upper right. You got a little profile icon and a settings icon. The PlayStation Store is finally integrated into the system, not as a separate app. Uh, And honestly, the coolest feature I saw is that there is voice dictation for typing that works with the integrated mic on the controller, which is awesome. But my overall impression is this is a much, much slicker version of what Sony did on the PS4 with a lot of cool new ideas. Yeah, it honestly, it feels to me like... um... If, if everything works the way you want it to work, it feels like an execution on what their like big picture vision originally was for the PS4 UI. And then it seems like like technical limitations, especially with some of that streaming stuff, prevented them from actually getting there. Because if you go back and watch that original um, sort of reveal event and then the subsequent E3, they talk about a bunch of stuff um, that was not in the UI at launch. I mean, or in the OS, like one of which being, it's easy to forget now, but like, the setting games to um, rest mode and having them be in that sort of suspended state was not a thing the PS4 did at launch. That was like a year or two in. Um, And there's like a lot of that stuff of like the streaming of being able to share your gameplay with someone else or like have someone take over your gameplay. Like they talked about all these kind of like big conceptual ideas that they wanted to do with the PS4 UI that they never got to. Um, And this just looks like they now have gotten into a place and I'm imagining a lot of the SSD stuff probably helps this in making it just able to be a lot snappier and move between these different states incredibly quickly um, allows them to execute on some of those ideas because it seems quite cool to me. Um, it is, the, it's very easy to imagine how these different kinds of features like that activities thing could be useful. So being able to pull up um, a menu that is like a sub menu on the OS that has a list of the different kinds of things you could do in the game 
So like imagine being able to, instead of having to, if I wanted to play a match of Team Deathmatch and Call of Duty Modern Warfare, instead of having to go to that game, load into that game, load into the multiplayer, select all my shit, find the Team Deathmatch menu and select the Team Deathmatch menu. If I could just go to Modern Warfare in my um, PS5 dashboard or whatever and hit it and it shows me the cards and then I just go to the Team Deathmatch card and pick that and immediately loads me into that section of the game, that sounds fucking rad. Like that seems like a really smart way to have the overall UI be fully integrated into the games and kind of break down that hard boundary that currently exists between I'm in the UI part and then now I'm in the game part and I can move between them by pressing the home button or whatever, but there's like a very clear wall and this UI seems to be like breaking down that wall in a lot of ways that seems very smart. I think the big question is whether or not third parties will get into all of this, you know? Um, because it seems like it would be a lot of work to, to make sure all of that works. I It makes me think of when the PS4 launched, Sean. Do you remember how there was all that attention around, like, we're going to get rid of the logo screens and we're just going to launch you right into the menu and Killzone that was, did that? Yeah, that was specifically Killzone. They talked a lot about that with Killzone, yeah. That did not happen. We have had longer logo screens than ever the last couple of years. Um, and I do wonder, like... How, like, because in that in that like Call of Duty example, well, Call of Duty lets you skip the logos, but if it were like an Ubisoft game or something, like, would it would they be you know would it be kosher for them to like do some of these activity cards and just let you skip all the bullshit? Um, I would love that, um, but we'll see if other people do it because it would be I can a lot of like the usability is like you, Sean. I went to like different third party games like that whole tip system. And, and the activities cards, good God, that would be helpful for, like, an Assassin's Creed game, you know? Um, but we'll have to see if, like, they want to do that. Luckily, we know it seems like first-party Sony, first Sony games will do this, and, and that could be very useful for some of those. Maybe finally we can play a Naughty Dog game and get all of the collectibles because it will be easier to <laughs> find them. Yeah, I mean, because part of that is a, I, I wonder how much like community integration there will be I, especially like thinking more like to the future i don't think a lot of this stuff is going to be there at launch but imagining if you if either sony or like ubisoft or whoever could like curate a select group of influencers or whoever um that are like verified effectively and they could create a sort of community hints thing um or something like that like there are ways that you can imagine if you allow for enough customization and enough community integration that those features then become less um, less on the back of the developers to implement them and more the community can um, create what they need to create. And, that's, and you can see some of that stuff for like um, playtime estimates. I'm assuming that probably they will let developers and want developers to put in their own playtime estimates, but I would be surprised if they didn't implement a thing that was just, I mean, they know how much time you spend playing games doing whatever already. Like they collate a huge amount of data based on how people play games um any game that's connected to the internet um which is every video game you play if your console is connected to the internet uh so i assume that they would just collate all that data and then just give a like broad average um for this is how long it took the three million people who've played this level of this video game to beat it and so it's roughly going to be about 10 minutes or whatever right um so you can see how that could be made more robust without it having to be something that people have to like specifically go out and create bespoke for every single individual game. Right. So no, it's, it's really cool. I, I think overall it just feels like a much, I like I have been on the record. I don't like the PS4 UI. I think the big innovation, the PS4 UI made that I love is a 
home screen with your recents right there. And obviously mm -hmm. everyone has taken that now. That's how the Switch is designed. The Xbox home screen does that, and it's there in the in the jewel button as well. Um, and I think that's good, but I think the PS4 UI got very slow, very clunky. It takes forever to download and install games. Um, going into the different menus is just a fucking chore. When I want to see what is on my hard drive, I have to open that and then walk out of the room and go do something else and come back 10 minutes later when it's loaded what's on my hard drive and I can look at it. Um, there's just stuff like that where I, and I think like it just doesn't, it's very like blocky and chunky and I don't really love the look of it. Um, this feels much more like modern and I just, I, there's something about the PS4 UI that always to me felt like the in development version of itself and not like the final one like especially the way they like do the the sort of like in-game guide and it's this giant thing that comes up and takes over half the screen and it's just this like solid color always this was like kind of weird to me it felt like like that was the early test version and they never got to like the final development version this feels like a fully fleshed out developed version of a lot of those ideas and also feels like making good on their promise of like this is a hard generation break and this is something cool and new and i like that a lot yeah there's some of that stuff of like the picture in picture thing um immediately like there's something very funny about um it is in some ways conceptually very similar to what the original xbox one ui did with the fucking snap yep. mode thing with the connect and all of that and they show like the first time they showed off is literally just the snap mode thing where it would, it's like, for people who don't remember snap mode with the original Xbox One, it would just, you would snap any app to the side of the screen, but it would be, here is, kind of like what you're saying with like the PS4, um, if you hold down the PS button and it has like the big menu that comes up on the side, it would be a similar kind of thing, but then it would reshape and resize the other things to the game you're playing to keep the aspect ratio and everything. So you'd be playing on a smaller window. Um, it just seemed like clunky and awkward as shit. Um, and they start out showing that and then they show, oh, but you can also just do a picture in picture mode and it has like a little grid where you can move it. So if like, you know, it's not always in the top left corner, if that's where a map is in your game or something, you can move it to the bottom or to the top right or wherever you want to move it. Um, and being able to do stuff like watch other people, like just playing the, your own game and you're just like the example they showed was someone there, you're playing Sackboy. You have a friend who's playing Uncharted and you're just chatting with them in a party and you can just see what they're doing. Like when I think back to how I used party mode um, on the Xbox 360 when I played, you know, that really heavily with like all my friends in high school all the time um, because I had no other responsibilities, nothing else to do. So all I did was play online video games. Like that is kind of how I used it a lot of the times. It wasn't just playing multiplayer with people. It's also just chatting with people while you're playing your own game. And being able to see that and see them playing and if you wanted to like expand it and watch them and say, oh, I finished this level of this game the other day. Like, let me help you out because you're stuck or you don't know how to solve this puzzle or let me show you where this skull is in Halo 3 or whatever. Um, like those features, those like social features they showed off feel like things that are designed by people who actually understand how people use those kinds of social features. Another example being they've restructured how parties work to be more like a Discord style system where you create a like party that is, this is like my group of people, this is this party, this is the people I play Call of Duty with or whatever, and this is my Call of Duty party. And that exists regardless of whether people are logged on and in that party actively. So you don't have to send invitations every time you log on to the three people you play Call of Duty with. Instead, this is just our Call of Duty party. And if we all want to play Call of Duty, you just hop into that party that just exists independent of you guys and it's like a social feed effectively like a discord chat 
Um, like those kinds of features just feel like really smart evolutions of UI, like social stuff for video games that feels like the rest of the world has moved to systems like that. And it's kind of surprising now that I'm seeing that the PS5 is doing it, that video game consoles have not done something like that since, since those systems on PC have been in this PC and mobile. It's been the kind of the standard way you do something like that for years at this point. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. It feels like Sony not just looking at their own stuff and trying to expand on it, but seeing like, um, there's definitely some things in here that are pulled from, I think, later Xbox UIs that they've borrowed. There's stuff in here pulled from Discord, like you said. Um, there's, there's just a lot of stuff that feels like, okay, we've looked around, we've seen what other people have done, and we're integrating a lot of that into something that feels truly like next-gen, like an evolution of how console UIs and user experiences work right now, and I really like that about it. Um, it also sold me more, like I said, on the, the idea of the microphone in the controller with mm -hmm. stuff like... Um, being able to just talk to a friend without doing the mic, being able to do dictation, anything like that. Um, it feels like that is more integrated into the system UI than I might have predicted, and that's really cool. Yeah, it definitely immediately justifies the control, the microphone in the controller, even if you're someone like me who doesn't play a lot of online games anymore, um, and certainly am not like usually interested in doing chat with like random people in Call of Duty. Uh, but yes, the immediate example of, oh, and I can just use this to dictate a text chat thing or presumably that would just work for searching for stuff on the console it feels like a way better way to do some of the stuff that again the original xbox one did with the connect only you don't have a fucking microphone and, and, and camera on your tv pointed at you 24 7 and have to set it up and hook it up at the a special outlet in your console and all that shit um the connect just seems so obtrusive and clunky for that versus having like a microphone and the thing you're holding every time you're using the console anyways that seems like a smart way to implement that without it getting in the way of people absolutely i think it's good and um it's coming it's close sean november 12th yep. we're almost there yeah it definitely got me excited for this like just feeling like yes new console like a new ui new weird like i'm it's the first game you play on your modern video game console is figure out what the fuck the ui is and how you do all the weird shit the ui lets you do um, right like i'm very excited to just sort of mess around with that when i open up the box and see how all this stuff works in practice absolutely all right well you want to go ahead and move on to our topic for today sean yes i think it is time to talk about some batman holy podcast batman we're gonna we're gonna talk about this, man. Sean, I love this movie so much. It lives so large in my heart, as does the 1966 Batman at large. Today we are talking about Leslie H. Martinson's and really Lorenzo Semple Jr., the writer and creator of the show, who who also wrote the movie, uh, Batman, sometimes known as Batman the Movie. That's what it's like. I have my Blu-ray here. That's what they call it on the, the the case, but it is not the official title of the film. Same with like Superman from 1978. Um, but this is Batman from 1966. It is the first theatrical feature film to feature the caped crusader. Uh, it was not the first time Batman was in theaters. I did consider whether or not we should take a look at the Batman movie serials from the 1940s. There are two. That was the first time Batman was ever done in live action. Um, they are out on DVD. I think Warner Brothers has like a, an obscure DVD release of those. The problem is they are both about five hours long because they are movie serials. Um, so they aired in like 30-minute chunks when you would go to the movie theater. And they are apparently extremely racist towards the Japanese because they came out during World War II and you have Batman fighting the Japs 
as apparently he says many times during that serial. So we did not look at those because I don't know what the benefit would be. <laughs> yeah, and they're, those are not feature films. They are. No. They may have been in a movie theater, but they were not movies. They, if if TV had been around when those came out, they would have been TV shows. So yes, we are talking about the first Batman movie. That's Batman nineteen sixty six with Adam West and Burt Ward. And I will just say the starting thesis of this project for me, Sean, is that this is my favorite Batman movie. And we will have to see if any of the others can prove me wrong about that. I love this movie. I I love this movie as well. I definitely would not say it's my favorite Batman movie. I do you know, I I think it is. To me, clearly too long. Like it is, that is like the one thing I I don't like about this movie is it does. Sure. I I wish it was two to three episodes of the TV show rather than it being a because it's like a yeah it's like a hundred and four minutes. So it's a, it is a lengthy movie. Um, and for for what it is, uh, but when this movie is on top of its bullshit, uh, it is so good. Um, it is incredibly good and incredibly funny and captures. Um, it like legitimately captures a certain spirit of the comic books from that time um, of the Silver Age Batman. If I mean, it would the only way it could capture it better is if there was a section where Batman fought like in a completely disposable generic alien species, because that was about every other um, comic book in that period was to whatever superhero you were, you just fought off a random alien race every other issue. And it's just lost to time and nobody realizes that Batman has fought off like a thousand alien invasions between 1940 and 1968. But other than that, it is a true, I think, like, earnest is not the right word because it is tongue-in-cheek. It is satirical in many ways. But there's something in its satire that captures, to me, a lot of the appeal of the comic books at the time as well, which is something that um, we'll see when we get to Lego Batman. But with the possible exception of that, no other Batman thing has ever done um, that is that this scale. Yes, and, and that goes for the whole TV series. I mean, let's start there. What is kind of your background? I think I've seen more of this show than you have, is my sense. You um, definitely have. I've only seen little bits and pieces. I've never, like, properly watched through the show. I've just seen an episode here and there. Yeah, and I have not watched the whole show. I have the box set. I've watched some scattered episodes and most of season one. Um, the TV show, just so people know, the background of this is it aired on... ABC from 1966 to 1968. It aired three seasons. Seasons one and three are both, I think, 26 episodes. And then season two is like 60-something because TV schedules back then were insane and this show aired twice a week. Um, the basic structure of the TV show um, is every story is a two-parter and you have a big cliffhanger always at the end of part one that is ridiculous like Batman and Robin hanging above a shark tank or something, right? And, and the narrator's like, how will the Caped Crusaders get out of this one? Tune in next week, same bat time, same bat channel. And then you, um, <clears throat> and then there would be a break and you would move on to the next episode. Um, and the movie came out in between seasons one and two. So they shot season one, then they shot the movie, and the movie came out in the summer after the TV series. The plan initially was that the movie would be made and come out first as a way to promote the TV series, but the TV series came out first and was a huge hit. The TV show was extremely popular right out of the gate, and the movie actually in its initial release did not do very well because it was not like filling that kind of like hype big function. Um, 
And while the movie definitely does like use the movie budget more, like it, the bat copter and the bat boat are introduced in this, and they actually used the movie money to create those so that they could use them in season two because they would not have been able to afford that on a TV budget. And this movie just has a lot of stuff in it that you would not be able to do on TV. Um, it is very true to the spirit of the TV show. If you if you have seen Batman the movie, you definitely know. I think a lot of the basics of the show, the format of the show, is a little different, and obviously it's a little lower rent. But um, this movie is obviously not like super high budget either or anything, and that's part of the fun of it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really cool thing. And and another thing about the history that's important to say is that for a very long time, until just a couple years ago. Batman the movie was the main way you could legally see any of the Adam West stuff mm -hmm. because there were some big rights disputes. Um, 20th Century Fox Television produced the TV show. This was before there was a Fox network, but Fox produced the show. They obviously licensed it from DC. And then there was also, I think, the producer's company was involved in it. So there were three rights holders who held like the domain over this. The movie, for whatever reason, was simpler because it was just Fox. They distributed it. They put it in theaters. They made it. And so Fox has always owned the movie. And so the movie was on tape. It was on DVD. It was on Blu-ray now. The Blu-ray I have actually, it was, it was one of the first Blu-rays. You can tell from like the back of the box where they're like telling you like what Blu-ray is, you know? <laughs> um, so this was an early Blu-ray release. But the show never came out on tape. It never came out on DVD. Um, there was this whole weird era where in the mid-2000s they couldn't put the show out, but they made a bunch of like documentaries and behind-the-scenes material, and they just put that out. And there's a DVD of, like, here's all the bonus features, and then go online and torrent the show. Because you were like, it was bootlegged on VHS back in the day, and then those were made into torrents. So it was one of the most sought-after TV shows. And finally, a couple years ago, Warner Brothers struck an agreement with Fox... And they sort of jointly released this Blu-ray restoration box set of the entire TV show. There's a gift set version, which is what I have, which also has a little like model of the Batmobile and some other goodies. And then there's also just a normal set. It's on DVD and Blu-ray. It's pretty cheap at this point. Um, it's really gorgeous because the whole show, it's kind of like Star Trek from that era, was shot on 35mm film, so it looks really good. Um, you can see Cesar Romero's mustache under that makeup in all its glory. It looks mm -hmm. great. It's very obvious when you're on 1080p restored Blu-ray from 35mm film. Um, so you can finally see the show. But for a long time, the movie was the way I think the Adam West show lived in pop culture because it was the main representation that was easily legally available. And so I think um, it was my introduction to Adam West. Was it yours too? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's the main way I think a lot of people have seen um, the original Batman. And it is a phenomenal representation because you get Adam West and Burt Ward. You get Alfred in there. You get four of the major villains because this movie is a team-up with Joker, Penguin, Riddler, and Catwoman. Uh, Catwoman in this is the only person who was not on the show. In the show, Catwoman was played by Julie Newmar. She was busy shooting something else when they went to do the movie because it was the off-season. So she's played by Lee Merriweather in the movie. And in the third season of the show, it's Eartha Kitt. Um, as as Catwoman, which which is an interesting change, and she's really good too. They're all really good versions of Catwoman, um, but yeah. So it is this like you know big movie version of the show. I probably agree with you, Sean, that I do think this would be better as a ninety minute movie. I think it is too long at one hundred and four minutes, but it has so many good gags. I just have my list. I wrote here are my favorite gags, and I filled four pages of my notebook because this movie is so consistently creative and funny. 
I think it really hits the spirit of what the 66 Batman show was about, which is that I don't think it's just funny. I think it has a legitimate take on the culture of the time, and I think it comes from the very specific time and place that was America in the 1960s. And I actually think, not that I, I want to get too serious with this, I do think it has a, a, an interesting relevance in the 2010s, or now the 2020s. Um, in terms of talking about like Batman's legacy, because I think 66 Batman always had a fundamentally different view on this character than the sort of Frank Miller era that Batman has largely existed in on film, where most of Batman on film's history comes from that more like 80s comic book era Batman. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting to talk about right now, more so than it would have been a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess to, because I do want to like expand on, to like just give some context for Batman as a character in 1966, because I think it is important to kind of understanding this movie, because the modern conception we have of Batman is really far away from most of what this movie is doing with the character. Uh, because Batman is one of the oldest superheroes, right? He's a DC hero. So you've got Superman as your original from Action Comics number one in the 30s, um, and then you get. Uh, Detective Comics number one, which is where Batman comes from. And Batman, in that what is called the Golden Age of Comics, which is basically the 30s and 40s, um, Batman is sort of vaguely recognizable as Batman in the sense that it is more like he's solving crimes. Um, like it is more like crime detective focused stuff. I say that like generally speaking because Golden Age comics, if you've never read any, are like weird. Like they are truly bizarre. Um, and very hard to read because I think like the narrative logic and pacing of them is sometimes like nigh incomprehensible. Um, but it, you know, like some of like what we recognize as Batman stuff does come from that period. Um, obviously like the origins of the character, all that kind of stuff is there from the very beginning. By the time you get more into like the late forties, um, where it's a, the comic books become a lot of war propaganda stuff, which is where some of that movie serial comes from. Um, and then into the 1950s, that's where you're starting this transition period where it's not really the golden age anymore and you're not at the silver age yet. The silver age of comics is when Fantastic Four number one comes out and Marvel starts its thing. Um, but superhero comics start going out of fashion in the 50s and it's a lot more horror comics start becoming more popular. Romance comics like Archie stuff becomes a lot more popular. Um, and so one of the tactics that's used to try to sell these books is to just come up with incredibly outlandish covers and like outlandish plots and use those to, to attract people to have like, here's just, um, I was looking at some of them earlier. Like here is like one where here's like Batman holding a gorilla over his head that is strapped with explosives. And it's Robin being like, oh no, if Batman can't get rid of the this explosive gorilla, we're all going to die. Um, and it's a lot of that kind of stuff where it's just very over the top. Um, the dialogue is incredibly theatrical. Um, you end up with this problem where the printing and the sort of paper stock is incredibly cheap. And so you can't have periods in sentences because you're, you can't rely on periods being defined enough in the printing process. So every sentence has to either end with a question mark or more commonly an exclamation point. So every single line of dialogue carries this very theatrical over the top quality to it. Um, and the stories are just completely ridiculous. And this is where Batman stops being, I think, if you go back and read a Batman comic from the 50s and 60s, I think it's pretty hard to really recognize much of what you'd see if you came out of Batman Begins in the Dark Knight and you go back and read some of those Batman comics. It's pretty unrecognizable 
um, as being that character outside of the costume and Robin being there. Um, and Robin was a 100% mainstay. Robin was in like every Batman thing for that whole period of time for almost the, like basically because Robin was introduced very early in Batman and it was fucking Dick Grayson ass Robin with the same costume he has in Batman 66 with like the weird like sort of green thong and the pixie boots and all that. Like Robin was just in all of those. Um, it was always Batman and Robin, the dynamic duo. And so this series comes out with that being what is like the current cultural legacy of Batman is that it's the serials, which are ridiculous and over the top. Um, it's some of the cartoons from the time, which are also ridiculous and over the top. And so there's something about the way the movie is representing that with like Adam West and Burt Ward's performance, which is both tongue in cheek, but also carries a certain earnestness at the same time that to me sells like it sells the theatricality of the dialogue. It sells the ridiculousness of the plot. And it sort of embraces a big part of that stuff um, that to me is a lot of fun because I do enjoy a lot of comic books from that period for some of like that ridiculousness. Um, and, and so that's where this comes from. And it's after this point in the 70s where you start getting more of the we're going back to greedy Batman um, after Marvel starts influencing things to be comic books become a lot more human drama focused because of Final Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Daredevil and all this in Punisher Hulk all those characters that in the late 60s starts pushing DC more in that direction and that's when Batman starts coming more into what we recognize as modern Batman but this movie comes out well before any of that stuff has happened to the character yes absolutely um, and I think what you talked about of like that line between the earnestness, the sincerity, and the ridiculousness, that has always been to me where the the core brilliance of the Batman 66 series and movie, and especially Adam West and Burt Ward's performances come from. I will go to the mat to my dying breath insisting Adam West is the best live-action Batman. And I don't think there's a credible argument otherwise. And I think part of that is because he is absurd he is goofy you laugh so much watching his performance and yet there is some kind of serious emotional inner life to this guy where you believe the sincerity of his like campaign against crime and his boy scout nature and his running the wayne foundation and his raising his young ward dick grayson and like there is something about walking that line that is so good and every Batman has to walk a line. And usually that line is between the, the Bruce Wayne Batman like personas and like the darkness versus the human and all that. And, and I think he has to do that plus this other thing. And he is just such a magnetic, fun, amazingly entertaining screen presence as Batman. And I think a lot of that you can say about Burt Ward as well, who is also great and also in this movie you can see is surprisingly ripped under that costume there are a couple shots where you can like see his forearms and he has these like big muscles under that thing that are mostly hidden by the costume but they come out just a little bit and i always find that funny because i think a ripped robin is funny to me yeah and i i think i agree with you that um like looking at this list of live action batman like yeah i think adam west is the best i think he like most fully executes on that the vision of the character that it's going for um i think all the other like there are other live action batmans i like um but i think all of them fall short of what they're trying to be um and i think adam west like embodies this vision of silver age batman in a way that like if i look at the dialogue from those comic books like it is adam west is the voice i think of saying so i've, I've brought up the um 
the comic book I was thinking of that has the fucking crazy gorilla. And it's Robin in the background racing towards Batman, holding up a gorilla with dynamite strapped to his chest, saying, Hold that gorilla, Batman! The instant he touches the ground, the bomb strapped to his body will blow up Gotham City! And then it's Batman struggling under it going, I don't know how much longer I can keep this up. Um, and there's something about that dialogue that's like, I can, it's, that's Adam West. I mean, it's either Adam West or it's William Shatner. Um, it's kind of both of them in my head at the same time. Um, because you also have a lot, similar to the period problem, you have a lot of ellipses. Because if you have ellipses and you have enough of the periods in a row, they will, you, enough of it will print properly to convey the idea. Um, so it's a lot of that kind of like the dramatic pausing, the um, weird emphasis on alliteration in the dialogue, which is very common at that time. And it's like, I can't say that about any other live action Batman that I would read a comic book and hear that version of the character in my head. That would only be true of the animated Batman uh, performances. But Adam West is 100% the only live action Batman that when I read some Batman comic books from back in the day, it is his voice that comes through in that character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, and I think what you said that like when I say best Batman, obviously if you hold him up to the like Frank Miller standard of like, would, would Adam West work in Batman Begins? No, but they're going for completely different things, you know? And I think it's, you judge by how fully it is embodying this version of the character and we will eventually get to Batman and Robin, which is attempting to do a Batman 66 thing. And I think one of the many significant weaknesses of that movie is George Clooney cannot do that. He just cannot. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, and George Clooney is a great actor, but he can't do that. Adam West could do that. And I think, I think um, there's this essay I'll probably reference a couple times during this. There's there's a book that um, Matt Zoller cites and Alan Sepinwall, two famous TV critics, wrote a couple years ago called TV the Book. That is them talking about what they've ranked as the top 100 shows in American TV history. Um, Batman is in there. So is Batman the Animated Series. So two Batman in this this top 100. And one of the things he says about um, is kind of what we've been saying about about Adam West. And that one of the things he says in there is that it's really taken decades for people to realize how good Adam West was in this show. Because what he's doing looks both simple and effortless. And I don't think it's either of those. I think mm-hmm. it is a significant comic earnest tightrope he is walking where you know to me like the 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 genius of batman 66 is that it is at once taking the piss out of batman and superheroes in a way that i in the year of our lord 2020 find exceptionally necessary and interesting and good but it is also earnest enough and and it has enough love for these characters and their world and their goofiness that I think it can both take the piss out of them and not feel like it is talking down to the audience for liking this thing. It is, I do think it is satirical in a way that is like like mildly kind of critical of this entire enterprise while also being really fun, earnest. We're going to watch Burgess Meredith go around going rah, rah, as a penguin and that's fun because we love that about the penguin, you know? And I think mm-hmm. it can do all of this at once. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's... Just it's a great movie. It's a great version of Batman. Um, and it's just people have to find it in themselves to recognize Batman as being a much broader thing um, than most modern Batman media portrays him as. And and yeah, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, Sean, or, or if you think my reading of this is off. I think Batman '66 for a long time, particularly when you and I were growing up, was looked down upon as like this silly, stupid thing dummies had done in the '60s. 
Yeah. But I think it has come more back into vogue. I think the re-release of the TV series in the 2010s really helped with that. But I also just think there has been... I, I, I want to say Zack Snyder might have been the, the cart that broke the camel's back here with Batman v Superman of like... And maybe Dark Knight Rises as well. Of pushing Batman in such a ridiculously dark direction that I think the Adam West show became something of like a, a salve to that. And it's not just that I think people have come back to it. DC has come back to it. There are two animated movies in the DC animated canon that Adam West and Burt Ward came back and did the voices for. It was Adam West's final performance before he died last year was in Batman um, versus Two-Face is, is one of the two 66 movies they did. Um, there was the ongoing, I think it's been going for a while, but there's the ongoing Batman 66 comic series. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which I think this has come back into vogue and maybe finally started to get its due as a very, not just an interesting curio, but a genuine, legitimate take on Batman. Yeah, and I think some of that, when we were younger, because I agree, I think in like the 2000s, um, through like the mid to late 2000s, I think like the common feeling about this version of Batman was that it was just like, uh, look at this corny, dumb bullshit. Um, but I think a lot of it was just like people maybe not realizing that it, it's trying to be funny. Like it's a comedy. It's 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 supposed to be like ridiculous and over the top. It's exactly what it's trying to do and trying to be. And I think there's like this, there was this misunderstanding that just because it was old and it was corny and old meant that it was corny on accident just because it was old rather than like, no, it is doing everything that you're identifying from this. It is doing intentionally to elicit um, a laugh from you. And so you're supposed to be laughing with it, not laughing at it. Exactly. And I also think one thing that has maybe brought the series back into vogue is that some of its anarchic spirit, which it absolutely has, I think has bled into stuff like, like the Marvel movies, like a mm -hmm. Thor Ragnarok has a lot of Batman 66 in its DNA. Absolutely. Deadpool, just as a character, but I think the Deadpool movies have a lot of this in its DNA. You know, anytime superhero movies can make fun of themselves, which is a definite mode you have now, not in DC, but in Marvel. I mean, it is one of the ridiculous things is that I think this is a significant part of Batman's DNA and, and current DC movies are trying to run so far away from that. We'll see what Matt Reeves does with his, but like... You know, um, Batman the Animated Series is openly very influenced by this. I think people don't realize that. Um, that. That Batman the Animated Series has way more of Adam West in it than I think people remember. Like, Batman makes some really corny puns in the Animated Series, and it is done perfectly when they do it. Because um, that show really was designed to be like this affirmative acceptance of all the different versions of Batman that had happened, and that's what that show does. Um, versus now, I think, you know, the Snyder years kind of brought us down to the just the grim, dark, you know, Frank Miller, not Frank Miller, Dark Knight Returns, but Frank Miller, Batman, All-Star, and Robin um, version yeah, of the character. Oh, yeah, All-Star, Batman, Robin, or Dark Knight Strikes Back. I forget what the, his sequel to The Dark Knight Returns, yeah. which is widely derided as being fucking terrible. Yes. So, you know, I think that's where Batman had kind of fallen to. Um, but I think at its best, you, you want to bring in a little bit of this, you know, chaotic zaniness. And so many elements of this were influential, particularly, you know, the next thing we're going to be talking about, Sean, are the 80s and 90s movies. And all four of those have so much Adam West in them. Jack mm -hmm. Nicholson is doing a Cesar Romero for the Joker. 
Uh, uh, Jim Carrey is very much basing his Riddler on Frank Gorshin in a lot of ways. I think these are all inferior takes on it, but uh, the one I would say is not is Michelle Pfeiffer, whose Catwoman is so influenced by all the Catwomen on um, on Batman 66, and I think she might be the best of them all when we get there. But, um, you know, this, this sh- series is not just an ancient legacy or, or an ancient curio. It has a legacy that is still alive in in the world, I think. I mean, it was the defining pop cultural representation of Batman up till the Tim Burton movie, right? So it's right. like, obviously the comic books had moved on from that point, but most people don't read comic books. Like, most people's understanding of Batman was this TV show and its accompanying movie, because as you said, it was hugely popular, um, which everyone knows, because we go, da 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 I don't care who you are, if you've lived in America, at the end of that, you just had said Batman in your head, right? Like, it's... Like, it is a defining pop cultural touchstone, whether you've seen it, whether you know anything about it or not. Like, there's no way you're avoiding some basic stuff that this movie introduced. Well, not this movie, but the whole take on the character between the movie and the TV show introduced into our pop culture. So it is absolutely a defining foundation um, upon which the later live-action Batmans build. Yes. So there are so many ways we could go with this, Sean. But let's talk about the villains for a moment. Um Yeah. Because this movie has, I think, I think one of the prime attractions of the movie versus the show is the show is structured, just like the animated series 30 years later, every episode is a villain-centric episode. So, you know, the, in the, I think the initial, like, run of episodes for Batman 66 is like, you start with High Diddle Riddle, which is the episode where the Riddler sues Batman, and it's phenomenal. That's also where the Batusi comes from, the dance he does. Um, and then I think you have a Joker one, and then I think you have a Penguin one, which is one of my favorite Batman stories ever. And then I think you have, I forget what villain after that, but you have kind of have a rotation that they go through, right? Uh, King Tut was a big villain <laughs> in the Batman show. He is not in this movie. Um, there is, if you go back there, you would have um, one of the most fascinating artifacts of 66 Batman is you get to see pre-Paul Dini Mr. Freeze. And, mm-hmm. and Mr. Freeze, before the animated series, is an unrecognizable character, and he is also awful, and those episodes are boring. Mr. Freeze was correctly derided until Paul Dini came up with uh, the Heart of Ice episode of Batman the Animated Series. But this movie takes the big four, which in I think are still the big four in the public consciousness, right? Like, are there any other Batman villains that are bigger than these four? In like, like, Bane has become big because of Tom Hardy, but I don't think he's as big as these four. No, yeah, I think especially if you if you take Bane, if you take that specific version of Bane out of the equation, um, yeah, like I think Joker is obviously number one, um, and then I would say like Riddler and Penguin are like right below him in terms of like if you say the Penguin, people know who you're talking about. If you say the Riddler, people know who you're talking about. Same thing with like a Catwoman is also huge. Um, in a way that if you said Clayface or Scarecrow, I would not be as confident that the person would know that I would be referring to a Batman villain specifically. Right. Um, or Victor Zaz or something, right? Oh, yeah, certainly like, that. Or like Rachel Ghoul. Like, then, yeah, then you get into ones where it's like, I would be utterly shocked and be like, oh, you must be someone who really likes Batman if you know what I'm, the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, when I talk about Hush. Yes, exactly. So these are the big four. You have Cesar Romero as the Joker with his big ass fuck off mustache right under that makeup. It's great. You have Burgess Meredith as the Penguin. You have Frank Gorshin as the Riddler. And you have, in this movie, Lee Merriweather as Catwoman, who is also playing Miss Kitka, 
Um, and I think one of the main attractions of the movie, this is what I was going to say earlier, is that instead of having individual stories with these villains, this is one where all four of them are together and you get a bunch of scenes of these four giant personalities bouncing off one another. And it is one of the things that really makes me love this movie because I love all of these incarnations of these villains and having all of them bouncing off one another and off of Batman and Robin is one of the true joys of this film. Yeah, I think it's, like, broadly speaking, there's some, like, specific gags and stuff with Batman that are some of my favorite parts of the movie. But generally speaking, I think the scenes with the villains are the best parts. Um, Like, there's never a point where if they're all four together in interacting and talking that I'm not, like, paying 100% attention. In a way that, like, once you get to that, like, last sort of fourth of the movie and there's a bunch of, like, the action on the submarine and stuff, I'm kind of, like, looking at my phone a little bit because it's like, oh, this movie's kind of been going. And it's like, they've kind of done this joke a few times at this point. Um, but when it is these four just sort of bouncing around being ridiculous, um, it's so much fun. And it is also just fascinating to get this window into what feels like this very now, like kind of inconceivable interpretation of some of these characters. But specifically, it's just like so bizarre watching a Batman thing that features multiple villains. One of the villains being the Joker and having the Joker not be like the main villain, clearly, right? Yes. He's, he's, he's honestly, I think, probably has the least focus of any of these four characters. Like, Penguin seems like he's at the top with like Catwoman because she's with Batman a lot. Riddler seems like kind of right below them. And then Joker is the one he's just kind of having some fun and going, hoo, 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 ha, 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 and like doing some like wacky shit. But he's always being ordered by one of the other people to go do something. He just goes and does it. Um, he like feels like he is the least sort of weighty of any of these villains and like Penguin and Catwoman carry so much of the villain side of the movie, um, which you can see with Catwoman, but I don't think like a modern interpretation of Batman usually would go with that for Penguin. They, if Joker was there, they'd focus 100% on Joker and let the other characters kind of be supporting people that they don't focus on much. Oh, 100%. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, honestly, Joker is the only character who does not directly interact with Batman and Robin until the final fight. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think Frank Gorshin is in a scene with Adam West, but the Riddler is leaving all these riddles that they're, you know, deciphering. So he has a big impact on the story. Obviously, you have the whole Miss Kitka interlude in the middle with Catwoman, which is very funny. You have the Penguin coming around as the Commodore and pretending to be a normal guy, but he can't stop going. Rah, rah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I have my answer for who the best villain in this movie is, but I want to hear if you agree. Who do you think is the best of these? I'm mean, picking a best is hard. I mean, I would personally go with Penguin. He's the one yes. who he's yeah, he's again, like he feels like he's the focal point as far as the villain side. Um, and I mean, he has that whole sequence, as you were alluding to, where he's he's pretending to be the Commodore and Batman and Robin see through it immediately, which is fucking hilarious. Like which is one of those things that you just don't expect it in this movie. Um, and it's one of the things that sort of like it uses the way that it's sort of playing a lot of the Silver Age comic book like plot tropes very straight. And then it's one time they just don't, right? Because generally speaking, if a villain disguises themselves in an old school comic book story, nobody's going to see through that disguise, no matter how obvious it would be, because that's how the plot has to function. And so having Batman and Robin just immediately clock that it's Penguin because it's obviously Penguin is hilarious. Um, and then the whole sequence of him bringing, like, the dehydrated soldiers into the Batcave. Um, I think it's, like, Penguin's role feels like it's the one where he is 
he gets some of the best comic material because he's the one who's pushing the plot forward. Um, and he's the one who's like living in this very sort of just standard silver age comic book plot. Like the whole thing of him dehydrating minions and then disguising himself <laughs> to get himself into the bat cave and then using water to like make them come up and then they fight, but then something got fucked up and then Batman's able to sort of save the day. Like that is not any more ridiculous than the average plot of one of those comic books. Like that absolutely, if you just played it straight, that would just be one of those comic books. Like you can imagine it in your head of like, oh, of Robin in the background going, oh no, Batman, the Commodore has dehydrated his minions and infiltrated the Batcave. What do we do? And it's Batman being strangled by the Penguin and the Penguin going, ha ha, Batman, I've got you this time. And Batman going, oh no. And that would be the cover of that comic book. And it's very easy to envision. Um, and the Penguin just is existing in that world um, without him ever realizing that also he's in a satire. And it makes him, I think, the most entertaining character. 100%. I, I love the Penguin from Adam West Batman. I think Burgess Meredith, who we all love from Rocky, he is Mickey in the Rocky movies. Um, and he's great. But I just think Burgess Meredith as the Penguin is, to me, the definitive Penguin. It is more than any other villain on this show. I just, there is no other Penguin I can watch without comparing it to Burgess Meredith. He is that good. He is that good on the show as well. My favorite episode of the show is an early two-parter in season one where the Penguin gets out of prison. He doesn't break out. He's paroled. And he wants to do an evil plan, but he doesn't know what to do. So what he does is he just goes around and does a bunch of weird shit. And he waits for Batman to deduce what all that weird shit must be. And he listens in on Batman figuring it out. He's like, okay, I'll just do that. And he does what Batman assumes he's going to do. It's brilliant. I, the, the, I really do think the Burgess Meredith Penguin, I, I have never seen a better take on the Penguin. I've seen other good takes that I like. I like him in the animated series. I like him in the games, the Nolan North Penguin. Um, I really love Danny DeVito in Batman Returns, and we'll get there. It's d disgusting and weird, but I love it. Um, but there is not a better Penguin to me than Burgess Meredith. He is, and he is the anchor of this movie on the villain side. He is so good. Yeah, and he just he just throws in this. I mean, it's true of all the villains. They just throw themselves into it 110, percent um, which is the only way you can get it to work, right? Because they are given the most ridiculously over the top dialogue to deliver, and it's like the only way you can do it is to 100 percent commit. Um, and he does to every single line delivery. There's this. <laughs> There's this part that, so I have my list of favorite gags that I wrote down. And one of the ones that like, I wrote down, I, I just, I laughed my ass off at this and I couldn't even tell you why. And I think it's just Burgess Meredith's delivery is the scene where he introduces um, the, the, um, the de dehydrate, the dehydration. I forgot. I was about to say the get water out of them, Ray. <laughs> But it's the dehydration ray. Anyway, he introduces this and he dehydrates all the pirates on the ship. And then they're putting them all in the vials. And he has a sign where he goes, wah, wah, be careful, every one of them has a mother. And there's something about how he says that that is so riotously funny to me as the kiss off to that scene. I mean, it, the way it happens, it feels to me like it must have been ad-libbed. Because like the way it cuts immediately right when he says it, it feels yes. like it's this weird ad-lib on set. Um, especially because he says this like carefully, carefully as Catwoman's shoveling the, the, the ashes or whatever into these vials. And it's like, you're just watching it and you see Catwoman spilling like 80% of the shit all over the floor. It's hilarious that they, you know, it's the kind of thing where 
I don't think that was intentional to have that be like this visual gag of her just like spilling this all over the place because it's a fucking dustpan. It's not like a funnel or something she's pouring it into. Um, but she just can't get it in there. Um, and so then having Penguin say that on top of it as you're seeing that she's clearly fucking this up, um, but the movie will never acknowledge that they fucked that up, uh, is very funny. There are just some Batman villains that are so ridiculous. I think it works better for me when you lean into the ludicrousness of it. And Penguin mm. is one of those. I'm sorry, you cannot do a serious take on the Penguin. It is not possible. You have to go a little heightened and a little ludicrous and a little stupid because it is a villain named the Penguin who has an umbrella that shoots exploding shit. Like, and I think all the best takes on the Penguin lean into that. I think this one does. I think Danny DeVito does. I think on the animated series where he has this like posh accent and he's like, you know, going around. It, it's it's, and then I think the games kind of take off on that too. Like. I, I, there, there's no way to Zack Snyderify the Penguin. I'm sorry, you know, like, yeah, it's, it, 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 it has to be a little heightened. And I think Burgess Meredith just going in with, he's got his fucking Penguin phone and he's got his fucking Penguin submarine and he is going wah wah all the time. Like, yeah, that's what I want my Penguin to be. That is the standard by which all other Penguins are judged in my mind. <laughs> Yeah, because I agree with you. I love that there's something about him that is, like, it's pretty hard to do, like, the gritty version of the Penguin that's just, like, you know, he's he's a crime boss that has, carries an umbrella around that everyone calls him the Penguin, which is not a particularly intimidating name. Um, so it's like you, you have to come up with a bunch of weird bullshit if you want to do the gritty version. And sometimes that can work okay. But it feels like a lot of legwork to do something that oftentimes is not worth the return just to have a character that you can say is the Penguin and do all of your like weird. It's like, oh, he was made fun of blah, 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 and Penguin, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's like, no, just have the dude be – he's a crime boss. He's just way into Penguin shit. And that's it. Like – there's nothing else. He doesn't have any superpowers. He wasn't dropped into a vat of acid. Um, he, it's just a dude who runs a criminal empire who happens to just really like penguins a lot. And that's fine. I like penguins a lot. Lots of people like penguins a lot. Like, there's no reason why a crime lord couldn't also just have a big thing for fucking penguins. They're cool animals. Yeah. And, you know, I think when we get there with Batman Returns, we'll talk about that. Because I think Batman Returns is a minor masterpiece and is maybe Tim Burton's best, best movie. And part of that is Tim Burton is the one person alive who I think can do a semi-serious take on the Penguin because I think his conception of the Penguin fits into his aesthetic and thematic concerns in in the right, and which are already very heightened and theatrical enough to do that. I don't think mm -hmm. anyone else can. We'll see with the uh, Matt Reeves movie because they're doing something with him with Colin Farrell. And all I really want is Colin Farrell to go wah, wah, at some point because um, that would make me laugh. But but we'll see how that happens. Um, but yeah, so so okay, we love the Penguin. Cesar Romero's Joker obviously is great, and and has and Cesar Romero has influenced pretty much every take on the Joker, um, other than oh, yeah. maybe um, the, the fuck boy from Suicide Squad, Jared Leto. Um, I would say he looms very large over Jack Nicholson. I think Heath Ledger obviously took some of that for, for the laugh. Um, Mark Hamill will be the first to tell you that a lot of his is like the laugh and stuff I think is uh, inspired by Cesar Romero. And he is, he is the most purely fun Joker of all the incarnations I think we've had over the years. Would that be an, an easy way to say that? Yeah, and it's, it's something of where it's one of the reasons why it's... it's you know, as a Batman fan, it's kind of mind-bending watching the movie and having the Joker be, like, the least focused on villain. 
is partially because Cesar Romero is, of all of these characters, I think the most recognizable as his super villain character. Like, that right. just... He just kind of is the Joker. And obviously he doesn't have, like, the sadistic quality to the character. Um, which is, like, a... You know, most modern versions of the character lean pretty hard into that. But there's just something about the look... You know, the mustache is what the mustache is. Um, but, like... The look is generally on fucking point. His weird laugh, his mannerisms. Like, there's something where you can easily see if you just put him into something that wasn't a comedy, he would just be completely recognizable as the Joker. In a way that these other supervillain interpretations, I think it's a lot harder to imagine any modern version of the character being that similar to them. Like, he's, it's he just looks like the Joker to me. And so it's hilarious to me that he is not at all focused on and he is, like... The fucking, hey, Joker, uh, Mr. Joker, which is how Penguin refers to him because there's a whole, like, the whole Navy-themed shit around this, which is hilarious that he's, like, the first mate, basically. And it's like, Mr. Joker, load the torpedoes, and the Joker just does it, you know? He's he's not, like, anarchic in that way. He's not trying to do that, so he's not written like the Joker. He just looks and sounds exactly like how you'd think the Joker would look and sound. But that's also one of the joys of this movie is the Joker jumping in with full gusto into his role mm -hmm. as first mate. Just because I feel like it's, it's entertaining him to do it. Yeah. It's so good. Um, but yeah, I mean, so Cesar Romero was a, a really cool actor. You know, he, he lived to the age of 86. Uh, if you go look at his Wikipedia page, you will see it's a, it's a picture of him from 1973. And you will see he had a big bushy mustache and a full head of hair. Both of those had to be covered, but he refused to shave his mustache for the show. He's like, no, I'm not. Look at this. This is cool. This doesn't happen overnight. I'm not shaving this thing. So they just did the makeup over it. On TV, I would have to imagine you couldn't notice it in the day because TVs were obviously very low resolution. The show was shot on 35, but you were not seeing it that way. I think it was hidden pretty well. In the movie, you're blown up on 35 millimeter in a, in a theater. It is extremely obvious that there's just this dark shadow under his lip with white face paint over it but honestly it's one of the things i love about it, it almost makes his joker feel more anarchic than he is because my personal headcanon is that the joker also has a big mustache and he just paints over it every morning and he thinks it's funny because i think that i the joker would do that why not yeah i do also like that there's something about like the look of this joker that it's pre the whole like oh the joker has to have fallen into some vat of chemicals and he's like been dyed to look like this and all that shit and this right. looks like no he just puts on makeup to look like a clown like that's just what he does as a person um which i think is an influence shtick. on the the heath ledger take you know yeah. um mm -hmm. as as different as heath ledger is overall i think there's something about that same thing of like okay he's a, he's a goof in like this this like fancy silly suit with like this face paint on it's great um no, I mean, obviously, very influential Joker. Everyone takes at least a little from Cesar Romero. He's great. Um, I love this Joker. Um, you know, I think if you really want to see this character in a fuller light, you want to go to the TV show and watch some of his solo episodes because he is mm -hmm. not the focus here. But I do think he is one of the best background elements of this film because he is just quite literally bouncing off the walls in all of these scenes. And he is really like the the like garnish on top of all the villain scenes uh and he's so good yeah yeah frank gorshin as the riddler is another one to me that is a fairly definitive take and i think this is true for a lot of people like um 
we will be we will be getting another live action Riddler finally in um, the new Matt Reeves movie, and we'll see how they do that and how different that take is. But I think the Riddler is one that has long eluded filmmakers of how to do seriously in a movie. Like Chris Nolan considered it several times. Warner Brothers really wanted him to have Leonardo DiCaprio as the Riddler in The Dark Knight Rises. And apparently Nolan considered it, but did not want to do it ultimately. And I see why, because I'm not sure how you do the super serious dark take on the Riddler. Um, but I think Frank Gorshin plays it much more straight than the other villains. He's out there, mm-hmm. he's wild, he's got his fucking little pink eye eye um, mask thing that he wears. Um, and he's got his ridiculous riddles. But in scenes with Batman, he carries a little more gravity. And this is very clear in, in um, the episodes with him as well. But he's just really good. Uh, obviously, Jim Carrey is sort of a maximalist version of the Gorshin Riddler, I would say, uh, in, in Batman Forever. But also one of the things we'll, when we will talk about when we get there that I don't think Batman Forever does particularly well is the riddles. And what I love about the riddles in the Batman, this is true in the movie, they also do this in the series, is that the riddles are utterly ludicrous and Batman and Robin figure them out in the stupidest ways and it is always so funny to me it is a joke that never gets old yes yeah and yeah i'm with you that frank gorshin is the one who feels like he's like almost like the straight man in the bunch um that it does like he's the one that feels like you could like you could just do the dramatic version with him playing the character um there is something that's like he he carries a certain gravitas to it um i don't know there's there's a certain je ne sais quoi to his performance i think is hard to define um, but it definitely it is it it feels every time I watch him playing the character it just feels like kind of revelatory to me in this way partially I think because you have so few representations of that character um, in like voice acted broader Batman media he's just the even though I think he's a really cool villain and you can do really great stuff with the Riddler and he has a bunch of like my favorite Batman comic book stories heavily involved the Riddler um, he's just one you just don't get enough of. And so it feels like specifically in live action, you only have the two. Um, and we'll, it's been a long time since I saw Batman Forever the last time I watched it. So we'll see how I feel about it this time. But my memory is I do not particularly like that take of the character at all. Um, no. And so there's something about watching Frank Gorshin as the Riddler that I'm like, fuck, man, I really like the Riddler. And like, this is a good, this is just a good version of that character. Um, and he he holds it so well. Um, but yeah, there's something very fun about it just because I feel like underexposed character in many ways for batman um that he really executes on really well yep um you know i i think his episodes of the show um i think particularly among fans tend to be highlights um because they're very funny but there's also something that like procedurally is a little stronger about them because he gives this spine to stories that is very strong i think with the the riddles and like the solving of the mystery like it turns batman into more of a detective when he's on screen um and I, I think there's two big riddle solving scenes in this movie the first one is the russian banana riddle which they seduce out to be he's gonna kill miss kitka because she's a russian and she's gonna slip on a banana and i love the kisser to that scene is is robin's like do you think we got it batman and he's like i don't see how anyone could come to any other conclusion and it's so good um what's the other one we have i'm trying to i'm looking through my notes because i definitely wrote these riddles down um 
Oh, there's the one where they figure out, okay, what comes up white and comes down yellow and white? And that's an egg. egg. And then there's, how do you split 17 apples among 16 people? You make applesauce. And then they, Batman gives this whole philosophical thing about how applesauce um, is like a purer version of something. And an egg is what holds our hopes. And so this it's, must be about the United Nations. Yeah, no, it's that applesauce. It's a unification of the apples right. um, is what applesauce is. Because that's how you would you would share it with more people than you have apples is you, you unify them together to make something that's greater than the that's like the sum is greater or the whole is greater than the sum of its parts um and then yeah so then the egg is a vessel um that represents this vessel that holds all of our hopes for the future therefore it must be um our like fake version of the united nations <laughs> it's very fucking funny it's so good it's so good i love and this is how they do them on the show too for those who haven't seen it is the riddles are always ridiculous like this and i love it it's another place where they skid into the ridiculousness of the character and and really lean on it and it's so funny um you know it's it's great um and then we have catwoman and catwoman here is played by lee merriweather she's one of the as i said earlier three people who played catwoman i this is the only time she did it but i really love her in this movie i think her mm -hmm. catwoman is very funny i think she's very good as miss kitka and i think that middle section with bruce and kitka on a date could and maybe should drag more than it does and i think it works because she and adam west have some genuine chemistry there yeah, I think there's something um, with Catwoman and like this version, the show's version of Catwoman, whoever's playing it, of, of the stuff that I have seen that I like. I like that it's like it's one of the few chinks in this Batman's armor is that he's a horny old fucker. Like there's just this yep. like um, <laughs> like the, the way that he's this very wholesome character and he's always about like you got to support the police and upstanding citizen and blah, 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 blah. blah. And then. Um, it's. I think the thing that really makes the whole conception of the character work is that he isn't actually perfect. Um, you get that here with the Catwoman stuff and how like easily he's tempted. Um, and then you also get that with the end of the movie and like the final punchline, which is fucking hilarious. Um, but it's just this. Um, I just really like that he has that like one really notable flaw, um, and he's always kind of like it's clear that he's sort of aware of it and he's just kind of like not, he's trying to play it off a little bit and there's something very effective about that. And I agree that like that whole stretch of the movie um, works really well because I think the chemistry between Adam West and Lee Merriweather is really strong and the, and like the pacing of the bits and stuff is really good. And, and it, it gives you this more complete picture of uh, the Batman character than just his crime fighting escapades. Yes. And, and I think one of the core things to how the show does Catwoman, and this is true across all three of the show's Catwomen, is that she is heavily sexualized, but it's funny. Like, it's there's something about it that doesn't annoy me in the way some overt sexualization does, because I think it is so clearly a, a larf, you know, that everyone's mm -hmm. in on. But, like, even it's honestly even more explicit on the show. I had forgotten this, but if you go to some of the Julie Newmar clips on YouTube, I gave you one, Sean, to talk about just so we had a reference. But I looked at a couple of them, and there's one where she is seducing Batman, and, like, there is this shot where, like, she leans over, and her butt is kind of in the camera, and it's, like, these super tight, like, shorts and everything. I cannot understand how that got on TV in 1966. I just fundamentally, like, this is the era where, like, Lucy and Desi had to sleep in separate beds because you couldn't mm -hmm. show married couples sleeping together. Like, some of the Catwoman stuff is out there. for It's much more, and I think this is an important thing to bring in here, 
it's James Bond. Like, it is very much yeah. Sean Connery-era James Bond. I think there's a lot of James Bond in 66 Batman. I think the movie leans into it even harder because of that interlude in the middle where Bruce is out of costume and he's just Bruce Wayne. And he is being like this sort of playboy and he is seducing Miss Kitka and he's trying to do espionage and then he has to escape on his own wits. It's very inspired by by James Bond. Adam West, frankly, has the look for it. Like, Adam West is this, like, handsome, middle-aged guy who, like, if he were British, he could 100% be James Bond. He's very mm-hmm. Roger Moore-esque. Um, and I think it's also a little bit of a parody of that because he is even more a slave to his own uh, loins, let's say, than James Bond is in that in that whole sequence. Yeah, and it's such a contrast with the way that he carries himself normally as a character, um, which is, right. it's you know, I mean, it's, it's just like how the joke functions is that he's normally like, he is the most ridiculous Boy Scout character um, in this incredibly over-the-top way that, again, is very consistent with representations of most uh, DC superheroes from that period. Um, and so they have him do that, and then you know, because this is the, because yes, while like a lot of like the media, um, like TV media and like mainstream media of the '60s had like that quality to it of where it was not sort of generally speaking going to be sexually overt. Obviously, we all know like what the general culture was with the counterculture movement at the time, which this is a part of, and so it's that sort of like recognition. It's something that like whenever I see this, um, I always just think back to like Burt Ward has like told stories about like the ridiculous sexual escapades and shit that he got up to during this period while he was playing Robin and like his popularity on the show um and this kind of rock star sort of life he led um and 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 there's something about like the way that they treat the Batman cat woman relationship feels like this sort of implicit recognition of that that it's like while we address ourselves up in this way to be like big boy scouts and what we talk about like of course they're fucking like obviously like they're people it's. I mean, I think this show... We'll talk about this more later, because one of my major theses about Batman 66 is that I think it is way more tuned into the culture it came out of than I think people give it credit for. I think it is, honestly, fairly finger-on-the-pulse for a lot of things in the 60s in terms of how it tackles counterculture and establishment. Um, but one of the ways it does that is having Batman in costume be relatively sexless, the way I think the 60s establishment conceived of itself... And then you have a silly lady in a cat suit wiggle her butt in his face, and he is, he's he's fucking like like a like a the the in like a Betty Boop cartoon, the guy with like his eyes coming out like wooga mm-hmm. wooga, like that's what he becomes, and it's it's very funny, and it is this like thing about like sexual repression that the show kind of nailed in how it um it's it, it makes this like the Batwoman Batman Catwoman you know dynamic this sort of like light BDSM kind of thing that it is more explicit in later takes um you know with the Julie Newmar incarnation there is some more explicit romance stuff that's the clip I showed you Sean there's the scene Mm -hmm. from a late season two episode where Batman and Catwoman like almost profess their love to a certain extent like that they kind of want to be together um and it very much harkens to future takes on Catwoman where Catwoman is much more of an anti-hero in modern Batman media uh, and she and Batman have some kind of like semi-serious thing going, um, and that is there in the '60s. Like, like the the different takes on Catwoman from '60s Batman are very influential, I think, on later versions of the character. Particularly Michelle Pfeiffer, who we'll see in Batman Returns, is really heavily influenced by these. Um, but yeah, it's it's great. You have a lot of cat puns. Um, I like Lee Merriweather a lot. 
Yeah, and you just have to write a lot of lines where the character can say the word perfect and just do the whole perfect thing. Like, he's just like, you know, it's just how you have to do it. There's no other way. Yep, although the best cat pun in the whole movie actually belongs to Adam West, where he is uh, at the end, they're on the boat, and he takes Catwoman's cat and throws it onto the raft, and he goes, Bon voyage, pussy! And that is one of my favorite lines in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so good. All right, where do we want to go next? So those are the big villains. Um, I have we can get into some more like serious talk like I said where I think this this show has some interesting relationships to sort of culture and counter counterculture we could talk about favorite gags what what do you want to go into here Sean uh, let's 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 run down some of the gags um, before we get into the serious yes. stuff because you know this is obviously this is a movie where we can't really like break down the plot and talk about the intricacies of the plotting of dehydrating the UN and all this shit um because it's like it's just ridiculous but holy shit this movie is incredibly funny i mean you start with the shark and Mm -hmm. i think that is a high bar they set for themselves of batman on the bat rope in the bat (laughs) copter hanging on there with a big fucking rubber toy shark on his leg and robin has to come down and give him the 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 bat or the shark repellent bat spray and he gets rid of the shark it is such yeah. a good start to this movie. It's so funny. And it's just such a fantastic layering of gags um, where they lean into it so far. Of, because it starts with, I mean, because, you know, the whole gag is that everything is a bat something or other. And it starts with them getting to the bat copter. And then Batman says, Robin, lower the bat rope. And then they lower a rope. And then you get that shot that has, there's a little tag on it that says bat rope. He goes to the bottom of the bat rope and then... Uh, he gets dropped into the I just love the visual whole presentation of him getting dropped like a little bit into the water um, and then he gets pulled up and then there's just this like ridiculous rubber shark that's like eating his leg um, which if it was a real shark he would be dead already <laughs> they would have bitten his entire bottom half off um, and then he's just like you know in this very Star Trek the original series like you know he's just sort of wiggling around trying to pretend the shark's attacking him and says, Robin, pass me the shark repellent bat spray. And then you get this great shot of Robin leaning over and he looks and there's just a panel that has a series of different bat sprays for like aquatic animal bat sprays. And there's like a dolphin one and a whale one and an octopus one. And he gets the shark one and goes down and hands it to him. Um, and then he sprays the shark and then the shark explodes because it's an exploding. It's not just a shark. It's an exploding shark sent there by the penguin. Um, which is one of a whole series of exploding aquatic animals we know he has because his next plan is to use the exploding octopus he has. Yes, absolutely. Um, and they and they do they play a lot with like cheesy, um, shitty effects. Like the shark, they could have made a better shark if they wanted to. The joke is that it is a super shitty rubber shark. There's another one I love late in the movie that I howl with laughter at where. Uh, Bruce Wayne, not Batman, but he's on. He's in that like their their lair uh, in the middle of the movie, and he is trying to fight his way out. And there's that one point where he kicks the henchman, and the henchman gets launched on one of the Joker's like launching pads and goes mm-hmm. out the window. And then they cut to just like flagrantly full shot. They are not trying to hide it. Just a little toy action figure that goes into a little puddle of water, like that they they had on a soundstage. And they just they do moments like that that are so funny because they're not even trying to be. Like, uh, to have any kind of verisimilitude with it. They also do that, like, I think there's one point where the bat car is just very clearly a little figure that someone's pushing along. Oh, Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, that stuff's fantastic. Thinking about the uh, hideout, 
one of my favorite visual gags is uh, in the scene where you kind of get introduced to all the villains. Uh, they're all like shouting at each other and trying to come up with their plan and accusing each other of like why the, the whole thing failed. They couldn't kill Batman. And then as they're talking, each one goes and stands in front of a shelf in the background that is like a shelf that has a bunch of their shit on it. So it's like the Riddler goes and stands in front of a shelf that says like private riddles. And it's like then the penguin goes and stands by his and it's like private penguin food. It's just a fucking like uh, aquarium, basically. And then the Joker stands in front of his and says private jokes. And then it's just a bunch of like whoopee cushions and hand buzzers and like cliche gag stuff. Um, and I just love, it's so evocative of the relationship these characters all have, that they're all living in this shitty hideout that's this, like, attic on top of this, like, like harbor pub that is just constantly has a bar fight going on 24-7, um, which is a hilarious visual gag. Um, and then they are all living there together. And they have their stuff, but they don't want each other touching each other's stuff. So they have their own shelves labeled that just says private. This is mine. Do not touch, basically. And it's very funny. Oh, it's so fucking good. Um, what's your favorite of all the different signs in the movie of like the different the bat spray and the bat rope in any of those? Do you? Because I, I have one that is never drawn attention to, but I love it. Um, I don't remember exactly what it says, um, but there's one that it's going back to the Catwoman stuff. There's one where they're talking about it's before he's going to go on the date with Catwoman, and Batman says something suggestive. Then it cuts to a, a sign that says something like involving a rocket or whatever, and it's like very phallic um and about like something rising or something like that i forget what the exact wording is though my favorite one and again this is only in the background they never draw attention to it but it is batman's film developing tank and it says film developing tank super fine bat grain yes <laughs> the something... bat grain yeah <laughs> that is the that is maybe the dumbest place they put the bat prefix and i fucking love it the super fine bat grain I mean, I also just love when the penguin's there and he has his water faucet that has just like this huge sign that says it, uh, heavy water on it. This is like... The whole just, scientific explanation yeah. for why the heavy water makes the dehydrated pirates explode is so good. It turns them into antimatter and then Robin <laughs> says, so that means they won't be coming back? And it's like them realizing they just killed four people and they just he says, on with it. he says they'll, they won't be coming back and Batman stares off into the distance and says not in this universe Robin <laughs> <laughs> so good so good my single favorite gag in the whole movie is when Batman and Robin go out to investigate the buoy in the water and they uh -huh. get trapped to it magnetically and there's the missiles coming. And you're like, oh my god, how are they going to get out of it? And then from the villain's perspectives, we see the missiles hit and they're celebrating. And then it hard cuts to Batman and Robin going away on the boat. And Robin says, thank god that porpoise came. And, and Bruce is like, yep, that brave porpoise jumped in front of the missile and saved our lives. And I love that they just completely elide it. They don't even hint at it visually. It's just these two talking about a porpoise that showed up and sacrificed itself for Batman and Robin. I howl with laughter at that scene. Yeah, because I, I have the exact lines here because this is also one of my favorite gags. And, and Robin, okay, good. Just, Robin just says, Gosh, Batman, the nobility of the almost human porpoise. True, Robin. It was noble of that animal to hurl himself into the path of that final torpedo. He gave his life for hours. <laughs> the brave porpoise. I love it. 
Yeah. Um, I Some of the gags I love is I love any, uh, basically any single line of dialogue that the commissioner has. Uh, all the scenes with the commissioner, uh, Chief O'Hara, who I'm always sad that Chief O'Hara is a character that doesn't exist in other Batman media because he's fucking hilarious in these. Um, and Batman yes. and Robin, but they're all together like trying to solve the riddles and shit like that. Um, and it's the scene where they figure out finally that it's all of the that it's all four of them have teamed together. And Commissioner Gordon has this line: Penguin, Joker, Riddler, and Catwoman too. The sum of the angles of that rectangle is too monstrous to contemplate. <laughs> Which is like that's a really good example of a line of dialogue that is like honestly not that different from some of the kind of some of the dialogue you would get from the comic books. It's just the delivery is so perfect. The sum of the angles of that rectangle is too monstrous to, comp- to contemplate. It's so good. I think that's the same scene where they're talking about all of them. And they, they say, what do they want, Batman? The the whole city? And he says, if it was any one of them, Commissioner, that's what they would want. It's like, the, the country? It's like, oh, if, if there were two, even three, maybe, the world... That is the only conclusion if all four of them are together. Yes, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I have that dialogue as well uh, because it is it okay. is that exact scene. So yes, so because after that line of dialogue from Gordon, Batman says, "We've been given the plainest warning. They're working together to take over, take over what? Batman, Gotham City. Any two of them would try that. The whole country. If it were three of them, I would say yes. But four, the minimum objective must be the entire world." It's, There's something about Batman 66 that feels like, and there's something very much in this in Adam West and Burt Ward's performances, it feels like when you were a kid and would like play Batman with your friends or like play any superhero and you would come up with these ridiculous scenarios for like the characters, that's kind of what it feels like. And like that scene has that of like, they're going to take over the world and and the way like Adam West always does this when he runs off into the distance. He does this little, like, jump at the end of mm-hmm. his run. And it's like, it's, it feels like a little kid playing Batman. And it's down to, like, the costume, the Bat logo, is just a fucking piece of construction paper taped loosely on his chest. It's just so, it's so do-it-yourself-at-home Batman. I, I, there's something about that I love. And that scene, like, speaks to it for me. Yes. But if we're talking about gags from this movie, to me, there is the king of gags in this movie is my favorite piece. And it is like, I think it's part of where, when I say this movie is too long, I think part of it is that it just so heavily peaks here for me, which is the extended gag of Batman trying to get rid of the bomb. And it's just this ridiculous, massive cartoon bomb that looks like, um, like kid link in Ocarina of time when he has to like pick up the giant bombs that are the size for the adult character model. He's just running with it over his head. It's this dumb cardboard thing and he's running around the Harbor and he just keeps on running to like nuns and this like band and there are kids playing there. Um, he runs, he's trying to get, just find a place to throw it away. And he runs up to like an oxygen canister storage area that says like, do not smoke, keep any flammables away from this. Um, and he runs back into like the same set of things multiple times as he's running down this pier. Um, and then it's, then he, you know, he goes, he finally gets to where he thinks he can throw it away. He looks over and there's some ducks there and he turns baby the ducks. It's yeah, baby little, ducks. Yeah. It's like five or six little baby ducks playing. Um, and then he turns and basically looks into the camera. He like half breaks the fourth wall. It just says some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Uh, that, that line of dialogue. Cause I mean, the first time I watched this movie was I was a kid. I was probably like 11 or something. And there's something about that line of dialogue that is like, been stuck in my head 
I think part of it is because you run into what is like a vaguely similar scenario in a weird number of video games where you're just like, you know, it's a fairly common, maybe you don't get it as much anymore, but back in the day, it was a pretty common video game objective where you have to like dispose of a bomb before it explodes and you have a timer and it's like a race kind of thing. Um, and you just get a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's just, there's something about that, that I think of that line of dialogue all the time. And I think just the extended bit, it's that it's the kind of humor that I, I'm very fond of, of where they push the bit to the point where it's not funny and then they just keep on going till it gets funny again. Um, and it's just sort of like some supreme visual comedy to me that I, I love that sequence all the time. Every time I've watched the movie or I'll just watch the clip on YouTube, it, it always makes me laugh. Yes, the, the porpoise joke makes me laugh the hardest, but in terms of a constructed comedy sequence, I think there are a few film scenes that I think are better than Batman and the Bomb in this movie. It is a perfectly... It is like something out of, like, Blazing Saddles. It is like mm -hmm. one of those, like, high comedy, perfect, never will be matched, this is great comedy sequences, and that the simplicity of that last line. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. And the way Adam West says it, like, he's fucking trying to, like, find an open bank in the morning, you know? Like, just this totally mundane, like, ah, oh, this sucks is so amazing yeah it, it's just it's a, an all-time great gag to me i love it so much in terms of little lines there's this there's this conversation batman has i think it's, it's when he's as bruce wayne and he's talking to miss kitka and they're going back and forth and they they bring up the topic of batman and miss kitka refers to him as the masked cossack that is one of my favorite pieces of writing in the movie mm -hmm. that she is like supposed to be from the Soviet Union. So she calls this like this masked Cossack you have in your city. And it is so funny. She has a bunch of lines like that um, that are just so good. Um, there's this whole thing where, where when they're kidnapped, Batman like or Bruce Wayne has the like thing in his watch of like this will tell them where I am. And she's like, well, that's a strange thing for you to have. And he has this line. I didn't get it word for word, but it's like a capitalist like me who carries large sums of money is a frequent target, Miss Kitka. And like the patronizing way he says that is so and I love that he frames himself as a capitalist. Yes. Uh it's because I'm just scrolling through like a series of quotes from the movie looking for other lines that I love. And there's here's a very small one that is like maybe one of the best like quick exchanges between Batman and Robin where they're running uh, from they're running to the United World headquarters. And Robin says, holy marathon, I'm getting a stitch, Batman. Batman says, let's hope it's a stitch in time, Robin. That saves nine. The nine members of the United World Security Council. Uh, that is, it's just their exchanges back and forth like that. Um, it's it, it's just like truly the writing in this movie is sublime. Um, it is so perfect at how it captures um, the tone. Again, just by balancing on that knife's edge between being what feels like an authentic representation of the comic books at the time and then something that's just a little bit over the top in self-knowing um, to put it into like explicit comedy territory. Uh, it is like such an artful thing, the dialogue in this film. There is this moment near the very end when, when Batman goes to get the, the vials on the ship and he sees Catwoman there and she has her mask off and he realizes it's Miss Kitka and Robin comes in and says, holy heartbreak, Batman. <laughs> uh, and then, but even better, this is, I think, Adam West's funniest moment in the whole movie just in terms of his performance is he stares off into the distance as Batman and like the sad French music starts playing and he's just staring. And then he says, and I have the exact quote, he says, 
It's just... It's just one of those things in in the life of every crime fighter. It means nothing. Slap on the back cuffs. And like they've actually clearly dubbed in the it means nothing line. And so it goes by really fast. Like he's just like trying to get over it. And it is it is howlingly funny how how much Batman is deflated in that scene. Oh my God. And his delivery of that line to Robin and how he like tries to comport himself when he says slap on the back cuffs is so good. Yeah, it is that just like because it just holds on that shot of him staring in the distance for a solid minute or so. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love the super molecular dust separator as our final set piece of them separating all of them, and the president is watching and everything with his like two dogs. I guess I guess that's kind of supposed to be LBJ because he's got like a southern accent. Yeah, it's um, like a fake LBJ. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's it's very funny. Um, yeah, so I think that does it for all of the, the like gags I have written down. But it is, like you say, the writing is just sublime. It is just, it is such a concentrated, bur- it's, it's, a, it's a great script. It just is. It's, it's a very well-written movie. Even if I agree there's probably a little slack in it in the, in the second half. But like, there's too much good stuff to complain, you know? Yeah, and it builds to what I think is always just an incredible final punchline, which is that they've fucked it up, right? And so you have all the UN council members are all speaking the wrong language. Um, and it's right after Robin has <laughs> said to Batman, I can't find the dialogue here, um, but he said to Batman in the previous scene, it's like, well, wouldn't it be better, Batman, if we could just, you know, tweak something here or there to make the world better? And Batman you know, says it's like, we shouldn't mess with the with Mother Nature, Robin. Earlier today, you saw just in this very cave the consequences of such a mistake. And Robin's like, gosh, Batman, you're right. I was foolish to think about that. Um, and then when it turns out that they just totally fucked up and they did the exact thing that Robin was suggesting that Batman says we should do. And then Batman just tries to play it off like, this is, you know, this great miracle. Um, we have done our work. Let us leave, Robin discreetly out the window and they just like everyone while everyone is like staring at this like they have like fucked up and like melded the minds of all the leaders of the like nine nations represented here batman and robin just quietly leave out the window and scale down on their fucking bat rope and it is it is such a great gag that after all this stuff batman has actually fucked up he has failed um, but because he is who he is, he's just trying to play it off like, no, like we have, he's he's completely contradicting the thing he said in the previous scene. It's like, no, we've, we have, we've maybe done something great here. We've maybe performed the greatest miracle man has ever known. And then he just let us quietly leave so that nobody notices that, that we did this. And I think that's a good segue into some of the thematic stuff I want to talk about here. Because I do think this is a legitimately interesting take on Batman to talk about right now. Mm-hmm. Because... The significant... There are a lot of obviously big differences between Batman of the 60s and the Batman we have now. But from an academic standpoint, I think the most interesting difference is that Adam West's Batman is not a vigilante. And, like, that's very pointed. He is a deputized agent of the state. He is working for and with Commissioner Gordon. It is not a tacit Gordon kind of, like, does this on the down low on the roof. It's that there is a red phone in the Batcave and there's a red phone at the commissioner's office and they talk to each other and Batman goes in front of the cameras and Gordon vouches for him with the public. He is not just a deputized agent of the state. Batman is part of the establishment. Like he is very clearly tied. He is the he is the big Boy Scout establishment middle-aged white guy standing up against the ridiculous forces outside. 
And so it is this like counterculture thing in the 60s when this comes out of like you have all the protests and the left wing movements and all these like and, and civil rights and all this stuff. And you have, you know, the white guy in the White House like standing athwart all of it yelling stop, you know, this very conservative kind of William Buckley-esque thing. And that's kind of where they cast Batman. And the big subversion is that Batman is fucking ridiculous. And so it makes the establishment ridiculous and in a sense, the villains make more sense than anyone else in this world because they're the ones who know what they are and what they're doing, while Batman and Robin are completely unaware of how ludicrous they are as creations. And that is kind of like, I think, the core of the satire of the 1960s show. And I think the movie is actually really sharp on it because it is a like concentrated two-hour movie and because it brings in all of this... Um, sort of Cold War text with Miss Kitka and with the UN stuff that is not there in the series necessarily. And so this this the way it like frames counterculture versus establishment and they are this interesting mirror to one another where the people trying to stop it are as much if not more ridiculous than the people creating the chaos is I think a really interesting image of all this. Yeah, and you, you get some interesting, what feels like more explicit commentary with the Cold War stuff, where you do have the scene that is hilarious to me, where he calls um, the Pentagon, and he gets Vice Admiral <laughs> Fang Schleister at the Pentagon, and you see him playing with, like, this... I don't even remember what the game is. He's playing, like, fucking Othello or some shit, like some dumb board game with his secretary or someone. I mean, and he's answering the phone, and he's talking to Batman, and she's like, it's Batman, oh... Um, and Batman asks him about the um, missile because they, you also have like a shot where um, Penguin has a submarine that fires a Polaris missile. And they use actual like um, stock footage from the period of the Polaris missile shooting up out of the ocean because the Polaris was like an actual submarine missile, missile uh, that was invented at the time. Um, and so he's asking Fang Schleicer about that. And Fang Schleicer says, oh, yeah, answer affirmative, Batman. We disposed of a war surplus submarine last Friday, a pre-atomic model to some chap named uh, P.N. Gwyn. P.N. Gwyn? <laughs> the Penguin. Did this P.N. Gwyn leave an address? No, just a post office box number. Would you like it? No, thank you, Admiral. Gritting his, and then here on the quote I have, it says in parentheses, gritting his teeth, which is very true. You've been very helpful. A vast embellay, Batman. Your tone sounds rather grim. We haven't done anything foolish, have we? Disposing of pre-atomic submarines to persons who don't even leave their full addresses? Good day, Admiral. They hang up, and then the last line from the scene, Fang Schleicher just says, Oh, gosh. And then you don't see that character again. And there's something about this uh, very, like, ridiculous portrayal of Batman just has like a speed dial to the fucking Pentagon where they're just sitting there on their asses doing nothing playing around selling uh war surplus uh, submarines and missiles and shit to people uh around the world without caring without like paying attention to the consequences of what that is um which is what we did in the cold war that's that's the cold war that's what we yes. hey Hey, we sold weapons to people all over the place in the Cold War as part of our sort of proxy war bullshit we were doing. Uh, and it's this very... It is like this this moment where Batman himself feels like he, it's, it's above and beyond his level to sort of tolerate what the administration is doing. But then as you say, as you see throughout the rest of the movie, that Batman himself is like 
susceptible to these exact same kinds of foibles that at this early part of the movie he's sort of accusing the the uh, Pentagon of and by the end he has fucked up in those same ways yeah so I mean when this movie is made we're just getting into Vietnam but yeah. like so like uh, honestly this movie like that scene which could be right out of Doctor Strangelove I mean it yes. is that level of sophisticated satire I think but it is prescient like I, right now Sean I'm listening to this podcast um, by Leon Nafok who did Slow Burn, and now he's doing this show called Fiasco for Luminary. Um, and and season two of Fiasco is about the Iran-Contra affair under Reagan. And I had not... I knew what Iran-Contra was broadly, but listening to this series is like... You have to listen to that series with like one hand over your mouth for all the time you will spend gasping at what the Reagan administration did. And, that it, and it's not like a bunch of malicious stuff. It's them being fucking idiots. Like, because, like, the basis of the Iran-Contra affair is that there were these hostages in Bolivia, and the Iranians said, like, through a chain of command that, like, was very clearly, in retrospect, like, fraudulent, that, like, there was a bunch of con men, that they could get these hostages out if America gave Iran a bunch of missiles. And so it started with Reagan ordering Israel to give Iran 95 missiles, and then the Iranian guy, the con men, said... Okay, we're not going to give you any hostages for that. But if you give us 400 more missiles, we'll release one hostage of your choice. So they did it again. They gave 400 missiles and they didn't even release the hostage they wanted. And they just kept going along with it. And it's like, that is even more ridiculous than what happens in Batman 1966, right? Yeah. Like, it is a level of ludicrousness you can't even fathom. And yet this was happening. And so I think the... Because this is... This is going to be probably my overriding thesis of this series on Batman, Sean, is that one significant problem I have with the vast majority of Batman media I've ever encountered is that I don't think any of it really holds Batman to task for the destructive nature of his own actions. And I think some of that I don't mind because it's so far out of reality. And some of it I think is a significant problem. Like when you get into Chris Nolan and like, it is so close to the real world that it is uncomfortable the stuff Batman does and is viewed as heroic, if you know what mm -hmm. I mean. Yeah. And I think Batman 66 is the smartest and frankly most like moral presentation of this character I've ever seen because it just frank it just straight up ties him in to the establishment. It does not in the Frank Miller way post him as the like uh, salve to the establishment the the thing that will fix the establishment because the establishment is feckless and you need this like frankly fascist interrogator to come in and like fix it all for us this strong man what it says is no batman is on the side he is deputized he is part of this establishment and they are fucking ludicrous and feckless and silly and the world has gone mad and they are just as mad as what they think they are fighting and I think that is one of the best critical takes on any superhero that any piece of comic book media has ever had. Yeah, no, it's it's a thing where um, if you're like analyzing superhero media from a political lens, like superheroes, superhero as a genre is just antithetical to revolutionary politics. Like it is superheroes are positioned as um, functionally 
this enhanced version of law enforcement or this enhanced version of violence committed by the state to maintain a status quo, right? So it's like characters like Spider-Man and Batman and Superman in the vast majority of the representations. This isn't always true. And, and maybe eventually we can, we'll do a Superman thing and we can talk about the original representation of Superman um, from the early, early, early action comics, starting with action comics number one, where he's more of like a socialist uh, stylized version of a hero. But in the vast majority of representations of these characters, they exist to enact violence to maintain a peaceful status quo rather than trying to be agents of like true social justice. Like that's not what they're typically portrayed as. It's not to say that like not that it's impossible to do a superhero story that does that, but it's very difficult and it's moving against the grain of the natural momentum of the genre and what the characters are best at functioning as in a narrative sense. That doesn't mean that that superhero stuff is bad, but you have to, I think, be like cognizant of those politics, um, which I don't. I think a lot of Batman stuff either isn't cognizant of those politics, or in the instance of a lot of Frank Miller stuff, it is cognizant of those politics and is leaning into it in a way that is fucking gross and and terrible. In a way that, like, The Dark Knight Returns, I don't think is very good because of that. Um, but um, this, but I also of appreciate The Dark Knight Returns and some of that stuff. For at least being open about it. I don't sure. have to agree with its politics to at least appreciate that The Dark Knight Returns is openly engaged with those politics in a way most media is not. Sure, yeah. It, it, it just makes it hard to stomach when you kind of see the like sure. underlying ideology is like, this is pretty hard for me to like actually go along with because it's, it's pretty gross in some places. Um, but this version of Batman, the 1966 version of Batman, by playing it as a satire and like recognizing... The ludicrousness of the superhero and the sort of fantasy it presents um and in maintaining the status quo that is not good um it's never been good in america but certainly like if you want to look at one period where it's particularly not good the cold war is one of them um and so it's sort of shining that mirror and being this ridiculous satire of it i think it makes the batman character sort of more appealing in that sense from the sort of like sociological perspective i um, mean i think it's it it is Something that, especially when you have all the, like, sort of grandiosity of what Batman has become, there's something so refreshing about looking back on this when what the character was, was this ridiculous do-gooder um, who, you know, was, you know, all of his shit was, the, I've got my boy Wonder and we're going and we're fighting crime and we're doing our thing. We're stopping alien invasions um, and, you know, don't do drugs and support your local p police kids. That's our message. And, like, all that kind of stuff. And just, like, leaning into that and displaying it for all its, like, ludicrousness for the world. Um, that is a Batman that I uh, fully support. I mean, honestly, the opening of this movie is that acknowledgement section that starts with, like, we thank the real crime fighters. And then it keeps pushing further and further until it is joking about it. I don't know if you could get that in a movie today, Sean. Because we have become so pro-police as a, like, yeah. the conservative side of the culture that, like, makes movies. I don't know if you could get away with that. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It, there's something about their commitment to using the word crime fighter, um, which is such a ridiculous term. Um, it is like not what the police are, where they, they're not this institution that goes and like saves the day by stopping like these like morally reprehensible crimes, right? Like that's not the general function of the police in any society. Right. Um, and so this is usage of the word crime fighter in this very quaint way. Um, where Batman, I love that he has that line early on where they're they're on the buoy and he's just like salt and like salt and degradation, like the greatest enemy throughout time of the humble crime fighter. 
um, and that sort of commitment to that sort of language to sort of like infantilize in many ways uh, what Batman is, I find very funny. Because I'll tell you, one thing that really solidified me on wanting to do this series is over the summer, I um, got the Batman the Animated Series Blu-ray set, finally, mm-hmm. that they put out a couple years ago. It's great. I highly recommend it. That's so nice to have that series restored in HD and everything because it fucking deserves it. And I think overall, you and I probably would both say that's our favorite version of Batman, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's not beyond criticism. And I do think when Batman the Animated Series tries to get closer to an actual real life dissection of this character, I think it stumbles pretty hard. And there's an episode in season two called Trial where um, you have the DA Janet Van Dorn who is like anti-Batman because she thinks Batman is escalating things, not making them better. And then the villains kidnap Van Dorn and Batman and put them on trial and make Van Dorn defend Batman. And I think that episode starts, because I was actually talking about all these issues online and one of our listeners um, recommended this episode said, hey, have you seen this? I'm like, I'm sure I have, I just don't remember it because there's a lot of episodes of this show. I think I've seen them all at one point or another. Um, So I went back and watched it again, and I think for the first half, that episode comes startlingly close to actually indicting Batman on his bullshit, and that, yes, he is the reason all these villains are out there, and, like, he is making it actively worse, and Janet Van Dorn is right. And then that episode, because it has to, because if you actually acknowledge that, you have to, like, change the, the status quo of the series. I think that episode actually is kind of gross to me in the end of its ultimate conclusion is Janet Van Dorn deciding no Batman is innocent because you guys made him like this not the other way around and to me if you and I know we're being overly serious about comic book media but this is an academic discussion and this is what we do Um, that's not true like Batman it is I think and and I think this is something that societally we're coming to realize is that you cannot say when the state which Batman, I think, does represent, is yes. overly violent towards its people, that the people did that. You have to go... The power structure doesn't work that way. And there's something about that episode in reversing it and saying that, no, you know what, Batman, the world is crazy enough that we need you to go out as a bat and beat the shit out of these guys and throw them in prison because they are just that bad. And that's something I just really heavily don't like about that episode. And I think it is something... I don't know how much this was on the mind of Lorenzo Semple when he wrote all of this, but, you know, he was a writer who was very uh, involved in social stuff. Like, he later wrote the fucking Parallax View in the 70s. Like, this is a guy who wrote either big social satire or dark paranoid thrillers. And I think he has a sense of what power structure Batman represents. And that I think if you're going to tell that story, like, kind of with, a, with an eye on the real world, there's something about the ridiculousness of it and taking the piss out of that and showing it to be kind of feckless that is really necessary and I think makes Batman 66 feel more relevant now than maybe it would have 10 or 20 years ago when I don't think our culture was in a place to see that message again. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's something that, um, like, I think Batman functions, generally speaking, at its best um, for the majority of Batman media. That is, you know, not the Adam West thing, which is very much different from what we normally get from Batman. But the sort of normal thing you would expect from a more modern piece of Batman media, I think it works at its best when it's low scale. It's really focused on Batman 
as someone who's a detective solving a crime who exists in this more heightened comic book world. And so the characters that he encounters, the Joker, Mr. Freeze, whatever, they are like criminals or like murderers, whatever it is on like this heightened level. So it's, but when it's more in this like vaguely Sherlock Holmesy-esque area in terms of the genre it occupies, and it's more relative to that, I think Batman is extremely successful. And that's where like the animated series is really good because that's what most of the episodes of the animated series are about is Batman trying to solve some mystery related to whatever villain of the week it is. When Batman stories try to do the more grandiose thing and pull out and this is like what Frank Miller does and a lot of his stuff. Nolan um, flirts with a lot of this and I think he gets way harder on it in Dark Knight Rises and I'm excited to watch that movie again to sort of reassess it because I've not seen it since the theater. Um, but this is also very much Zack Snyder, Batman v Superman, Batman, where it's really interested in, in exploring these bigger philosophical ideas through the lens of Batman. I don't think Batman is usually a very good character to do that with because you're going, no. because you, because I think the only way to do that and have it work is to have it be some sort of like radical deconstruction of the character in a Rorschach-esque fashion. And most creators playing in the Batman space are not actually interested in doing that. Um, but they maybe get bored of doing the detective story or whatever it is, but a lot of Batman media ends trending more towards let's take Batman as this big philosophical lens and question, you know, it's the classic Batman Joker story that's done to death of like who created who and who's responsible and blah, 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 blah. And can we exist without the other? And I think when you get too deep into that territory, you end up with like this story that can't end on saying anything because if you said anything, you couldn't do another Batman story. Or like that that writer would not be able to do anything else with the character because they would have spoiled for themselves the things that this character can do in a narratively satisfying way, which is that smaller scale detective stuff. I agree. And I actually think, you know, I have plenty of criticisms of the Tim Burton movies, particularly the first one. Tim Burton got this. Mm -hmm. Tim Burton, I think, pitched it at the exact right tone and angle, and that's something that allowed the animated series to exist, you know? Um, because the animated series flows pretty naturally out of what I think Tim Burton tees up yeah. in the 1989 movie. So we'll see that next week. But I think you're right. I think Batman works better almost like mythology than sociology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, like detective mythology, effectively. I'll say, this is not a movie on our list. Maybe one day we'll talk about it. I think one of the single best serious Batman stories that actually does this, maybe the best, is Under the Red Hood, the movie. Yeah. Um, because that movie is stone cold dark in holding Batman to account for his shit. And that ending is disturbing. And it, it is maybe the only piece of Batman media I've seen that holds a mirror up to Batman and then doesn't let him off the hook. Because usually it lets him off the hook. Yeah. I, for the record, I would be totally down for doing that movie at some point yeah. as maybe like a bonus episode or something. But yes, I agree. I think yeah. that's one of the few that does that well. I think, you know, one thing is, so we have 10 movies to do. We've done one. If, um, if we're ahead of schedule, because the, the new uh, Matt Reeves movie isn't coming out, I think, until April 2022, we might as well, we could pick a couple that we could also do to extend the series from the home video line, because there's plenty of good ones. Yes, um, there's no the end of Batman media for us to choose from. We could, do, we, could, we could do a Batman podcast. We could do Weekly Suit Batman if we wanted to. I don't, because I like Batman. I don't like Batman as much as like Gundam. Um, but there, it turns out people like Batman and people have been making a lot of Batman stuff for a very long time. Exactly. But I think this is what we talked about today, which I think we can maybe take a wrap on now, is one of the best. I heavily recommend it. People should see this movie. They should see some of the TV series. 
Adam West's Batman is a truly magical thing. You know, I also love it for being a full-throated Batman and Robin story, and it always was, and, and it has. And as you say, that was just the standard back then, but, like, you know, Batman feels right when he's got Robin by his side. Yeah, it is, it is. I think, one of the great crimes that we, we will see committed um, in the later Batman movies is how much they, like, just have destroyed in the popular conception the idea of Robin that like anybody who doesn't read the comic books or is like way into Batman just thinks Robin's dumb and stupid and it's like fuck like you it's you people are the reason why we get all this bad Batman stuff all the time that's like this very boring version of Batman that doesn't have Robin with him because Robin is cool he's cool in this movie he's a good character we should use Robin this is my yeah. soapbox and I'm standing on it no I mean you always have to say Adam West and Burt Ward they yeah. are a package deal you do not have one without the other. This conception of Batman is so conceptualized around Robin, you just, it's impossible to imagine a solo Adam West Batman. And, you know, I, I think you and I both kind of agree that's how it should be. The Bat family is important and should be in more stuff. And I do not like the Joel Schumacher movies, but when we get there, I will give them eternal credit for being the only live-action movies post-66 that tried to do it. Yep. Yeah, so talking about this, I'm now very excited to watch the rest of these movies because now I'm thinking about all the stuff to talk about, especially with yep. Dark Knight Rises uh, and thinking about Robin's stuff in Dark Knight Rises and revisiting Ooh, a classic podcast moment when we get there. Yes, indeed. All right, well, we will be back at it. We'll see when we get to the next Batman movie. It's it's We'll be doing 1989 Batman, which is a big one. Also, like, extremely important, and I'm excited to talk. I'm really excited to do all of these, Sean, so yep. it should be a fun series, and you can follow along. Um, with all of these movies we'll probably do another one next month and um, we'll see where we go from there obviously we're still doing weekly suit gundam and everything else but yeah um this was fun holy conclusions jonathan <laughs>